How does sabermetric research apply to fantasy? We'll talk about that and more with Jeff Zimmerman next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 1st. It's show number 35 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Jeff Zimmerman, baseball researcher and writer from Fangraphs.com, about his astounding team in the Tout Mixed League, roster management based on free agent pool side, about applying sabermetric research to fantasy, some thumbs up and thumbs down players for 2018 and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at Mike Leake, Joanna Cespedes, Kyle Schwarber, and other players. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at the two big Detroit trades and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analyst at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon reports on Cleveland right-handed pitching prospect Tristan McKenzie. In our playing time comment, Analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at a couple of category-specific September call-ups. In our Frequent Flyers comment, analyst Alex Becky looks at Philadelphia's second baseman Scott Kingery and St. Louis starting pitcher Jack Flaherty. In our Weekend Pitcher Matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at a marquee matchup pitting Boston left-hander Chris Sale in New York to face the Yankees and Luis Severino, as well as other pitchers for this weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be wondering if Troy Tulowitzki is coming up short. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? September is here. The marathon is coming down to that final sprint. And we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here, heading down toward the end of the season here. Nick, let's begin in St. Louis, where the Cardinals have traded Mike Leake, a starting pitcher, to Seattle. I'll talk with Jock Thompson in a few minutes what this means for Seattle in the American League report. But meanwhile, uh, for St. Louis, what does this mean in their rotation? It's not a big loss for St. Louis. Leake was a six-man and a very solid six-man rotation that still has Carlos Martinez Lance Lynn, Michael Waka, and uh, hot prospect Luke Weaver, and Adam Wainwright. So uh, five still solid guys pitching for St. Louis. So the loss of Leak is not going to, to hurt a whole lot, mainly an innings eater kind of guy. Um, and it looks like they're going to stay with the six-man rotation and take a long look at another prospect. Right-handed pitcher Jack Flaherty is the sixth starter. And what do we know about Jack Flaherty? Flaherty's kind of an interesting guy, um, a first-round pick in 2014, still just 21 years old, so a very young pitcher with, with a couple of years minor league experience behind him, uh, a big guy, six foot four, but only still needs to fill out, six, 205 pounds, so has some growing still to do. Uh, covered in the, uh, in the minor league call-up report in Baseball HQ, he, he knows how to pitch, his mechanics are repeatable, uh, has shown consistent success all the way up the minor league ladder was the number four prospect uh, by the, the scouting team going into the season. Uh, interesting in terms of his pitch mix. This guy has a, has a four pitches, a fastball that's not overpowering, 88 to 92 miles an hour, a slider, a curve, a changeup, 
none of them plus pitches, but all of them very good pitches. And uh, good command, pounds the strike zone. Those are the kinds of things you like to see. Uh, projected a solid number three starter, uh, chance of being a number two. Uh, looking at uh, what he's done this season, a 1.42 ERA, a 0.92 whip in double A. That's in 10 double A starts. And that got him uh, that got him promoted to triple A uh, in the in the PCL. We expect some erosion of stats in the PCL. It's a very hitter friendly kind of situation. A 2.74 ERA there, 1.14 whip. Uh, nine strikeouts per nine innings in both double uh, A AA and triple A. And command around 3.5 uh, strikeouts per walk in uh, in AAA. So uh, it could could be very serviceable down the stretch. And Nick, it sounds like he's a pitcher who's worth looking at for fantasy owners down the stretch this year, and especially for keeper leagues. Yeah, I think especially for keeper leagues. I, I think uh, St. Louis is going to be careful with him. As we said, they've got a six-man rotation at this point. Uh, he's got 143 innings already this year, so they may not want to stretch his arm out too much in terms of the number of more innings they put on it. It may be the six-man rotation will will help that, and they'll be able to keep him in the rotation all of September. Or there may be a point at which they say he's thrown enough innings, and we're just just going to go back to five pitchers for the rest of the season. In New York, the Mets finally put Yoenis Cespedes and his fantasy owners out of their joint misery. They announced he'll go to the DL and be out for the rest of the season. Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today and Greg Pyron in playing time tomorrow. So we got lots of news on uh, Yoenis Cespedes, starting with who gets his playing time. Well, you know, they're, the, the uh, Mets are starting to get very thin in the outfield. They may at this point regret trading Jay Bruce since they're they're running out of outfielders. But um, uh, Ligar, Juan Ligares and Brandon Nemo are the last uh, Met outfielders standing, both figure to get everyday uh, playing time for the rest of the season, uh, assuming they stay healthy because both of them have been on the DL already this year. Uh, Ligares had injuries, has had, actually had injury issues for the last couple of years. Okay, so let's uh, start with Ligaris. Uh, assuming he can't stay healthy at all, what do we know about him as far as uh, fantasy value and general value? Well, he's an excellent defensive outfielder, and, and that will that certainly helps him with for the Mets, but uh, less so for fantasy owners. A uh, 241 expected batting average, uh, 664 OPS over 131 at-bats, so uh, not going to be a great fantasy help, unfortunately. And you mentioned Brandon Nimmo. What about him? Well, even less power than Ligares. Uh, this guy is a 222 uh, expected batting average, a 66 uh, power index, uh, over 56 at bats, uh, a nice on base percentage, 406 on base percentage. So, an option in uh, deep uh, on base percentage leagues. I remember last week we talked about the Mets calling up Travis Tyron from AAA. We talked about him. Uh, just briefly bring us back up to date on him. Well, he's got to get some playing time now. Certainly, uh, with with the uh, the Mets down on outfielders. Um, He's shown good power, 25 homers and 448 at-bats in the minors, but also has struck out a bunch, 146 strikeouts. Uh, and so that, that could come into play uh, very quickly in the major leagues, of course. So I, I really wonder how much value Tyron will be for fantasy owners down the stretch. Probably not much. Well, maybe if you're in a tight home run race, you might pick up one or two extra home runs from a guy like him. But I'm a little worried that he's going to play enough to even get uh, get that going. Well, we'll have to watch and see. Of course, nowadays, Nick, in most fantasy leagues, you don't get to watch and see. You either have to move or, or lose because uh, everybody's got access to the information now. And as soon as this name appears on a waiver wire, you can bet somebody somewhere is probably going to take a chance. Yeah, absolutely. Although I saw last night he was hitting below the Mendoza line, I think, in the Mets game last night. So not a guy you go around. In fact, I think he was below 100 uh, in terms of the batting average. So uh, not a guy you're going to jump on right away if you're in a, str- a strong uh, 
batting average race. Any other names to watch in this Mets outfield situation? Not really. Uh, uh, infielder Matt Reynolds will play Cespedes on the roster, and he might share some time with Tyron, but a 180 uh, expected batting average, 43 PX, uh, should really give us some pause before picking up Matt Reynolds. Uh, the Mets activated Jose Reyes, and uh, he did work out in the outfield this spring and might be an outfield option. Uh, got off to a very slow start uh, this season, but have been very solid of late since July 1st, a 261 expected batting average, 94 PX, and a 140 speed. So if they start playing Reyes in the outfield, there's some uh, some good speed to be had down the stretch. Boy, I remember when Jose Reyes was one of the top players in fantasy baseball, especially for speed, but he used to be able to hit for power too. And of course, we all get older, Nick. That's one of the things about uh, life in general and baseball in particular. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we do, don't we? Yeah, unfortunate is right. Uh, Facts and flukes coverage at BaseballHQ.com. Nick focuses on players who are showing some unusual performance levels, sometimes a little bit more than we'd expect, sometimes a little bit less. But what Facts and Flukes does is validate whether the stats we're seeing are a fact or a fluke. And Greg Pyron took the reins earlier this week, and among the players he covered was the Cubs' Kyle Schwarber. A two sixty one batting average, nine home runs in the second half, 115 at-bats. A nice turnaround from the first half. So does Greg think Kyle Schwarber's hot second half is a fact or a fluke? Yeah, really just kind of more of the same, I think. We're, you know, if you're, uh, Kyle Schwarber's kind of an interesting guy, uh, but, but the a lot of luck-driven second-half uh, sorts of things. Uh, wild a batting average home run fluctuations between first half and second half. The problem is strikeouts. And unless he can curtail the strikeouts, he'll likely be a, a real batting average drag. Uh, uh, does have good patience to play. He's willing to take a walk. That gives us a value in on base leagues. Uh, his 122 uh, expected PX is down a bit from 2000, uh, from last season, but it's mostly because of a horrid April uh, 57 uh, expected PX and 93 at bats. So, uh, elite power, high fall fly, high fly ball rate. So a lot of home run potential. But the other thing we're seeing with uh, with Schwarber that could be a an issue down the road is he really struggles against left-handed pitching. 159 batting average, 576 uh, OPS, 54% contact rate, and 126 lifetime at bats versus left-handed pitching. That limits his playing time upside. Uh, and may mean that uh, as he as he develops, he's going to be a platoon kind of ball player. So you've got to like the power, but it comes with some warts. And if he keeps striking out at these rates and keeps struggling against left-handed pitching, uh, his BA batting average issues are going to persist, and playing time could start to be at risk. So 24 years old, um, the kind of guy in a keeper league you want to keep your eye on, uh, has time to work it out, but a lot of work left to do. And, of course, Kyle Schwarber has had some well-reported struggles defensively, which aren't going to help his playing time situation in in a team that's got playoff and World Series aspirations. They can't afford to have a guy blundering around out there in left field, no matter how well he's hitting, and then you compound it by the fact he's not hitting that well. And I'm sure the Cubs uh, might think that, that they have be- better options. On to the Rocky Mountains and the bullpen of the surprisingly competitive Colorado Rockies. Nick, these guys are in playoff contention, and who would have thought that? After scorching through the first four months of the season, though, their closer, Greg Holland, uh, he was nearly automatic, 33 for 34 in saves, a 160-ish ERA. But August, it just turned around. He's been terrible. 14 runs in eight innings, four home runs allowed, an 1174 opponent's OPS, 1174. I think I could manage that. Um, The abbreviation for that stat spells out, oops, and this has been a big oops for uh, Greg Holland. There could be some saves in uh, Colorado down the stretch as they battle for that playoff spot. Rob Carroll covered it for playing time today. Who's going to get the saves? 
Well, this is a complicated situation for Colorado because, as you said, they're in they're in playoff contention. They can't afford to be blowing games because uh, their their closer implodes in the ninth inning. Uh, and, and the other thing to remember about Greg Holland at this point, we're not sure exactly what the issue is. I mean, here's a guy coming off Tommy John surgery, has had an excellent season, but you know he's just he's he's uh, a year removed. He had surgery, and so the question is: Is he starting to tire? Uh, is that becoming an issue? And certainly that could be. Um, save opportunities. Jake McGee was Colorado's big acquisition before the 2016 season, and saved 15 and 19 before he got got himself replaced. And he got the ball in the two uh, the two recent Rockies saves opportunities. Uh, Pat Neshek and Mike Dunn have seen some late inning action. Uh, Dunn more of a stranger to save situation. So McGee and Neshek would appear to be the uh, the primary left handed right handed options uh, as we head into September. How long do you think this uh, situation will remain so unsettled? And is Greg Holland completely out of the picture for sure? Well, I'm not sure Holland's out of the picture. The The reports that I've seen out of Colorado say that what's happening is his slider is not getting his usual movement, his usual bite. And the question, I guess, would become, is there a mechanical tweak here that the pitching coach uh, can work on to get that slider back working where it should be? Uh, or is he just tired at this point and arm fatigue from surgery and a lot of innings pitched so far this season. So that's really unclear. And so I think we'll be seeing, uh, uh, they, I think the, the Rockies would really like to keep Holland in the role if he can get back to where he was. He pitched a, a good inning the other night, but the reports were that the, uh, although the inning was a clean inning, uh, there wasn't still much bite to the slider. So um, with a wild card spot, Black may just ride the hot hand, which right now is McGee. Uh, and I guess the best thing is to stay tuned and keep an eye on the box scores in Colorado and uh, try to see what's going on. Continuing the theme of closers, Nick, Sam Dyson was a complete disaster in the role in Texas, pitching to an 864 ERA. They cut him. He signed with San Francisco, made his way back into the closer role, something of a surprise. And in fact, he's thrived. A 0.95 ERA, 0.95. That's really something. Greg Pyron covered the story in Facts and Flukes, and Bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis was on the story in his piece about September saves leaders. What's going on with Sam Dyson in San Francisco? Well, you know, we may remember that Dyson was a great, really had a good year last year in Texas. So has he has he suddenly revived with a change of scenery? And you know, unfortunately, the skills have been really bad in both halves of 2017. Uh, a, a BPV of six overall. Uh, that's right, six, one digit, six, and a minus one in the last uh, recent run of 30 days. So that's really very bad for any pitcher and especially a closer. Uh, very low Dom, Dom under six uh, strikeouts per nine innings, even lower in the second half. Uh, a lot of walks, uh, f- five walks per nine innings in the second half. Uh, very low first pitch strike rate. That's going to lead to the walks, of course. 54% first pitch strike rate. So uh, his ball rate, his second half first pitch strike rate uh, suggests that, that maybe his control could move up a little bit, but not a whole lot. Uh, his dominance and swinging strike rate have headed in the wrong direction since uh, 2015. Uh, an 8 to 9% swinging strike rate, uh, not a lot of hope uh, there for increased dominance. Uh, one thing on his side, a 64% ground ball rate, 70% in the second half. and That's always been pretty good for Dyson. So he gets a lot of outs and helps to avoid total disaster uh, that the rest of his skills could produce. But uh, uh, he doesn't get hurt a lot by the ground by the long ball because he is an extreme ground ball pitcher. But the thing that's fluctuated the most in the second half is luck. 22% hit rate, 92% strand rate. 
those things are going to change at some point. We're going to see regression, whether it'll be in September or next season, but certainly we know the hit rate is going to go up and the strand rate is going to go down. Uh, so unless he reduces the walks uh, and gets more strikeouts, I see Dyson as a really risky bet. He's being picked up almost everywhere, of course, because he's getting the saves in San Francisco and he could implode at any moment. And it's not like San Francisco's really worried about uh, trying new guys in that role. Uh, they have some holdovers, of course, but they might want to consider future seasons if Dyson uh, starts doing poorly. So it's really hard to say who'll get the ball if, if Dyson struggles sometime down the road. This whole situation in San Francisco, to wrap it up, it seems to me to say just maybe if you really need to gamble, you can look there. But otherwise, you might just want to f- look somewhere else. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, San Francisco, as you said, is going nowhere this season, and uh, uh, they aren't they aren't winning that many ball games anyway. Are going in with leads, and so the opportunities are are not gigantic, uh, and the situation is unsettled. I think at best, uh, even though Dyson's got the ball now, he could, uh, as we said, could implode at any moment. All right, Nick. Thanks very much for helping us out. Uh, we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now over we go to the American League, and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Hi, PD. How you doing this morning? Doing fine, thanks. Doing fine. Uh, certainly not doing as well as the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, your stomping grounds. They've been making some big news lately, surprising everyone. First of all, with their sudden surge into the wild card race, and I'm sure you and most of the fans thought they were done. And now they've really thrown some chips into the pot by acquiring outfielder Justin Upton from Detroit for the stretch run. You wrote this up in Playing Time today, Jock. Uh, let's talk first about the fantasy ramifications of this for the Angels. Well, this was a it was a salary move by Detroit. I mean, they'd just been informed by by Upton that uh, he was going to uh, opt out of his contract. He has that capability uh, this off season, and the Tigers are obviously rebuilding, so um, they were afraid of not getting anything for him. And the Angels came in, swooped down, and uh, yeah, it was a nice deal for for them. Uh, it obviously helps an offense that was looking like an even bigger problem than that injury riddled pitching staff. Uh, Obviously, Mike Trout missed a couple of months in the middle of the season with the thumb injury, but even with that, I don't think people realize how bad the Angels' offense has been. It's 23rd in ter- in, out of 30 teams in MLB scoring, and I frankly don't know how they've stayed competitive uh, for this long. Well, you get hot at the right time and everybody else cools off. That's a big part of it. I know Detroit uh, didn't pick up much from the Angels in terms of the prospect. They got a guy named Grayson Long. Do you know anything about him? Yeah, he's a double-A guy. He's actually pitched very well this year. Uh, they're they're projecting him to have back-of-the-rotation upside. Uh, this is not a bad pickup for Detroit, frankly. They're they're getting very pitching-centric, and uh, and Long is the kind of guy who maybe in a year or two could, could have some major league value, but uh, n- nobody significant, like you said. Now, how does this affect Justin Upton as a fantasy value for the last month of this season? That's not a bad move for Upton owners. I, I checked the ballpark factors. I compared uh, uh, Angel Stadium to uh, Comerica last night. Uh, he moves from a, a right-handed hitting neutral park to the same in Anaheim. He's very likely going to hit right behind Mike Trout, which could improve his RBI uh, chances. Could even help Trout owners a little bit, given uh, given that even with his long DL stint, he's ninth in Major League walks, and at least now there's a chance that that might happen a little less with uh, with Upton behind him. 
Yeah, opposing managers might be a little less comfortable p- pitching around Trout with Upton lurking behind him. Now, what about the chance that uh, that Upton loses RBI chances because Trout's driving in all the first and second place hitters? Yeah, well, you know, there you go. Although, when you come right down to it, uh, uh, Trout hasn't been driving in that many runs if you look at his stats because there's just not that many there's not that much RPI opportunities in front of him so uh, we'll have to see what happens uh, some of this might depend on Unal Escobar coming back he's been he's been out uh, injured for a while they're expecting him back shortly uh, if he comes back um, you're talking about a guy with a with a 280 average who gets on base at a at a 340-350 clip uh, that could help the lineup as a whole uh, have they said that is it Trout third, Upton fourth, or have they have you heard anything about maybe letting Trout hit second, which seems to be the new place for the best hitter in the lineup with uh, Upton third protecting him? Yeah, Trout has been hitting second, and I think I think he's going to stay there, and I think they're going to put Trout third and move Pujols down to fourth. You mean it's going to go Trout, Upton, Pujols, second, third, fourth? That's right. Yeah. The Angels also dealt Cameron Mabin to Houston, apparently to make roster space available for Upton and playing time available. How does this affect Cameron Mabin moving to Houston? Well, you know, it's it's really hard to say. He's going to lose playing time. I mean, he was playing uh, uh, most of the time, maybe 60% uh, over recent uh, days with the Angels. He was the primary center fielder, and he was the everyday center fielder for a while in the first half when he was when he was really hot. But uh, he goes to a Houston team that has more outfielders than it knows what to do with. Uh, he's going to be behind uh, George Springer, obviously, and Josh Reddick. Uh, and when uh, Carlos Correa returns, Marwin Gonzalez is going to need a place to get most of his at-bats. And that's not even accounting for Jake Marisnik, who's been very good off the bench. Uh, he's hit uh, 15 or 16 homers. Rookie Derek Fisher who's a left-handed hitter. He has that over Mabin, and he's played pretty well in his MLB debut. So even with roster expansion, this this really reduces Mabin's playing time. Uh, we've cut it in half at, uh, at Baseball HQ. So not great news for Mabin owners, and particularly his uh, stolen bases, unless they, uh, they pinch run him a lot. Yeah, I suppose they'd have to, which might be a good use for him, actually, with the expanded rosters. He could uh, get into practically every game late in the game as a defensive replacement slash pinch runner. He could still pick up some bags, but I agree with you. I think maybe cutting his playing time in half might have been optimistic. He could lose more than that. Yeah, um, and and the one thing Maven does offensively consistently still is run. Uh, he's stolen 29 bases this year. He's among the leaders. He's only been caught five times, so maybe that's not going to be cut into that much, uh, but I'm pretty sure his playing time uh, will be. And now what happens to Ben Revere, who had been getting some playing time at Cameron Maven's expense and uh, doing pretty well with it? He was stealing some bases. He was getting on base. He was doing okay, but now it looks like Trout in right and uh, Upton and I'm Trout in center and Upton in left and probably who Cole Calhoun out there in right field doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for Ben Revere. Now you're right, and it's a shame because Ben Revere had actually turned his really wretched luck that he had in the first half around and he had been playing well as you well know um, he'd been he'd been running and uh, and running successfully yeah he's in the same position or a similar position Mabin's in maybe even worse given that the angel outfield is so is so pretty much entrenched uh, across the board uh, he's going to have to get some pinch running uh, opportunities with the angels I think he's going to get that though with the Mike Sosha team uh, they're going to want to score some runs and they'll probably be in some close games down the stretch so uh, if you need stolen bases I'm not sure I would be dropping Ben Revere just 
just yet. The Angels also surprised a lot of people by picking up Brandon Phillips, the second baseman, a long-time major leaguer and a really good major leaguer, in fact, just before the waiver trade deadline. And Phillips is not the player he once was. Let's get that straight right away. But he's still pretty good. And this move really helps the Angels' offense, maybe even more than Upton, because of uh, a significant difference as far as who he's replacing. Yeah, I've been watching the Angel second base black hole for the last three years, during which time, by the way, Brandon Phillips has hit over 290 in, in each of them. And uh, I love this move. Uh, this year, the Angels' collective second base batting line uh, is uh, 196, 271, 318. Phillips has hit 291, 329, 423 in 470 at bats. Uh, the Angels gain 160 points of OPS in this deal. And Phillips has been. Uh, evenly productive across both halves. He's a very, very steady player, and uh, he's going to add a lot to the Angels' offense, I think. As a crossover player, I think Phillips looks really good uh, for people in American League-only leagues. Uh, uh, Brandon Phillips looks like a target to me. Yeah, no, I would agree. Uh, I would I would jump on Phillips in a minute, particularly in that uh, new improved Angel lineup. Meanwhile, Detroit looks like uh, it's pretty obvious they're rebuilding. They've let go a lot of assets up till now, including Justin Verlander, which we're going to talk about in a second. But with uh, now Justin Upton gone, uh, as well as J.D. Martinez earlier this season, what's going to happen with that Detroit roster, their playing time, and their batting order? Now you're looking at names like Jacoby Jones, Austin Romine, Alex Presley, and or Jim Aducci, uh, all pretty limited from a fantasy perspective. It looks like really hard times in Detroit. I know they'd like to bring up uh, Hamer uh, Condelario, who they received from Chicago in the recent Justin uh, Wilson deal, but he's limited to third base and first base, and he hasn't had any outfield reps in the minors. Uh, the word is that they might move current uh, third baseman Nick Castellanos to the outfield, but nothing definitive there yet. Uh, this this really projects as another bad AL rebuilding team down the stretch. I seem to remember Castellanos playing outfield in the past for Detroit and not being real good at it. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall that, but you might be right. Uh, um, and they've talked about it for a long time, so it wouldn't surprise me if they did that. I know they really want to get uh, Candelario in the lineup there and see what he can do. And at this point in a rebuilding season, why not, right? I mean, it's not like they're losing any ground. Uh, I mentioned, uh, speaking of uh, Houston, where... Uh, Cameron Mabin is going. They got an even bigger addition than Cameron Mabin trading from Detroit and getting Justin Verlander, as I mentioned. Uh, Detroit's also sending $10 million in cash to cover some of uh, Verlander's remaining salary, and they got back three prospects, Franklin Perez, Daz Cameron, and Jake Rogers. Don't know too much about them, but the more important thing is how does this affect Verlander's fantasy value? Yeah, I was, I was a little surprised looking at the uh, ballpark factors and seeing that uh, – um, Houston played as neutrally as uh, Comerica does, uh, in, in, and Houston also boosts, boosts strikeouts by a few points, so that'll help. Overall, this is a good move for Verlander. He's got a better offense, uh, he's got a better bullpen. He's probably going to see a few more wins, even though we don't chase wins. Uh, a good deal for Verlander owners. I thought so too when I looked at the trade, mostly because I know Verlander gets deep into games. I mean, that's his, one of his hallmarks, one of his calling cards is that he's usually good for 115, 120 pitches, usually gets himself into the seventh or eighth inning. And up till now in Detroit, that sometimes hasn't been enough. You can uh, look at their bullpen blowing leads even in the ninth inning. Also, the fact they, they weren't scoring a lot of runs despite all the bangers they had in the lineup. I could see Justin Verlander picking up four wins in the balance of the season in that uh, excellent Houston lineup. Yeah, I agree. And and it really, it, it, it 
begs some interesting questions about the Houston bullpen. I think it's a good move for them because uh, they can take a look at maybe some of their starting pitching and put it in the bullpen and see what happens. They've been very successful with Joe Musgrove there. Um, and who knows? Uh, you've got Lance McCullers trying to come back. Uh, I'm not sure he's going to be a starting pitcher now in the postseason given uh, how injury-prone he's been and the way he struggled in the second half. But who knows? Out of the bullpen, he could be pretty decent. Some other teams have been busy as well as the Tigers and Houston and the Angels. Earlier this week, Seattle acquired starter Mike Leake from the St. Louis Cardinals. We talked about this from the St. Louis angle a few minutes ago with Harold Nichols, but obviously Seattle needed some help in their rotation. Rod Truesdell wrote this up for Playing Time Today, and you've written about the Mariners' rotation in Playing Time Tomorrow, and we've talked about it here on the podcast. Does this acquisition of Mike Leake do anything to help Seattle's dwindling postseason chances? Well, in terms of getting a healthy and, and veteran arm, sure. But after three re- uh, three seasons of uh, sub-four earned run averages, Leak is now second. Uh, he's in his second consecutive four-plus ERA season. And his second half has been awful. He's had a 694 ERA through 10 starts. His ground ball rate and velocity are all down ticks. His home runs are up. He's now moving to the AL in a park that's even more home run front- friendly to left-handed hitters than the one he left. Uh, he's better than he's pitched uh, in this second half, but I don't like his trajectory right now for September. Doesn't it feel like a little bit uh, too much, too little, too late for Seattle anyway? They've really been struggling since they got fairly close a week or two ago. They've lost ground to the Angels. They've lost ground to Texas. Uh, it looks like maybe uh, Seattle made this move a little too late. Yeah, I mean, they're the team that really needed Verlander if you're talking about a, a, a team that needs pitching. Uh, uh, the biggest problem with Seattle is they don't know when they're going to get James Paxton or Felix Hernandez back. Best hope is middle of September. And then they've only got two or three starts left for both of them, and you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, and right now, the rest of their rotation is just awful. Angel Miranda is... Uh, uh, seemingly the the ace of the staff. Well, Leak has replaced him now, but Miranda leads the league in uh, in home runs given up. He leads the majors in home runs given up. I think he's got forty something. Uh, he just he just gave up four to the Orioles in a game the other day. Uh, it's one of the reasons Seattle hasn't been able to gain any ground in this wild card race. You mentioned that they could have used Verlander. Of course, the stories we're now seeing dribbling out of Detroit is that Verlander was being very aggressive with his five and ten rights. He could veto a trade if he so chose, and apparently he did do that he was trying to angle for the Dodgers or the Cubs the stories go and uh, really didn't want to go to Houston and considering the weather (laughs) you can't really blame him but I guess he's uh, he finally acquiesced because he saw himself pitching in a World Series possibly this will all be really interesting and speaking of teams in the wild card hunt in Texas the Rangers have snuck back into the race they acquired starting pitcher Miguel Gonzalez from the White Sox for a minor leaguer they looked like they were throwing in the towel after the U Darvish deal, but here they are, three games back and trying to make a move. Yeah, it's kind of interesting after getting rid of Dar- Darvish, isn't it? Uh, Gonzalez is one of those interesting guys who has often outpitched his peripherals, and he's doing it again this year, particularly in the second half. He's got a 294 ERA in eight second half starts. His expected ERA during that period is 5.21, and he's done this in the past. Uh, Texas only gave up a minor leaguer for him, so why not, really? I'm always curious when I see uh, pitchers in particular who outperform their peripherals by this much. I mean, okay, if his if his XERA was 521 and he was pitching 490, you think, all right, it's within the re- realm of normal variation, probably even down to f- from 521 to 450 or 440 might be a normal variation. But under three, a 294 ERA is against a 521. Do we have any ideas how certain pitchers manage to keep doing this? 
Yeah, I haven't uh, delved into this any deeply, but you have to think there's some sort of deception factor there because uh, obviously hitters over the long haul just aren't squaring this guy up or, they're, or maybe he's just sold his soul to the devil. Who knows? Yeah, I'd like to look into it myself because it could be a real source of hidden value if you're going to your auctions knowing that this guy has a reputation of being absurdly lucky when in fact maybe he's got some kind of hidden skill that we're not seeing. In years past, that hidden skill was, like Jared Weaver and, and Marco Estrada, the ability to get pop-ups and uh, and avoid the... Uh, negative implications of being a fly ball pitcher because so many of the fly balls were essentially strikeout equivalents because nobody was moving. Maybe this uh, Miguel Gonzalez has something like that going on and we just don't see it. And it's a mistake for us to say we don't see it, therefore it isn't there. Yeah, definitely something for us to look into because uh, his track record, I'm, I think you'll agree, is really interesting, particularly pitching in a place like the Cell where he's pitched uh, most of the last few years. Of course, Texas's uh, chances of making the playoffs took a real hit with third baseman Adrian Beltre going down with a hamstring injury. I saw the play. He charged a, a softly hit ball and uh, came up limping, and it doesn't look good. He said right, uh, right after the game when he was interviewed, this does not look good, and uh, that's a pretty ominous sign Rod Truesdell covered this for BaseballHQ.com. What do we know? Yeah, no, I saw it too, and uh, and I I agree with you. I looked at it and said he may be done for September. Uh, couldn't have come at a worse time, and and he looks like he's going to be out for uh, uh, an extended stretch. Uh, Joey Gallo is likely going to man the hot corner. Um, it opens up a lot of interesting playing time situations there, particularly with, with roster expansion. You've got Drew Robinson and Delino DeShields uh, seeing their left field playing time boosted. I know Robinson can also play uh, third base. Uh, you've also got Willie Calhoun and, and Ronald Guzman potential call-ups. Uh, if Gallo's moving over to um, to third base, uh, you could see Guzman get a few get a few reps at first base. Robinson looks like he's going to get the largest playing time boost. He's got a, a really good walk rate, uh, doesn't hit for much average. He can hit for a little power. He's got a 126 uh, power index, uh, although a 33% uh, home run fly ball rate has kind of inflated that a little bit in the short term. Uh, lots of strikeouts, uh, like a lot of players today, his batting average isn't going to help you. But uh, if you're looking for a guy who can get some playing time and some walks and some home runs, uh, he might be worth a flyer. Well, I play in an on-base league, and I could use some home runs, so I'll have my uh, I'll have my eye on Drew Robinson. That's for sure. Uh, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out again this week. Okay, PD, thank you too, and uh, we'll catch you down the road. Jock Thompson is the director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Stay with us. Our Baseball HQ feature interview is next. Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs.com coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. First off, Stengel was to me one of the more misunderstood figures in baseball because of his time with the Mets and because he understood what his role was and his role was to entertain the media and, and I think uh, his baseball knowledge and his, his general acumen was really lost in a lot of that caricature okay he became a caricature uh, of himself and uh, for the players though it was interesting you know he'd get you in spring training every year and he would had the same routine I mean with the Mets I mean, he really started with the basics. I mean, he, like, he went over to the bag and he reached in there and he pulled out a ball and he said, this is a baseball. And that's where we started. Baseball HQ Radio. Ron Swoboda talking about Casey Stengel. 
And of course, anybody who was around in 1969 remembers Ron Swoboda, remembers the Miracle Mets. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Jeff Zimmerman, a baseball researcher and writer from Fangraphs.com. Jeff, welcome to the show. It's your first time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. As we cross into September, uh, Jeff, you have around 130 points in the 15-team Tout Mixed Auction League, which is a really impressive total. And you have about a 20-point lead, which looks unassailable. So first, congratulations on the great season. How'd you do it? It's kind of a unique team, and kind of the league history kind of forced me into it to try to make it the best I could. Generally, the team likes to do a stars and scrubs approach, and I kind of just hit the middle rounds and kind of try to find value there. I was going to say that uh, your team uh, had only three guys that were around the high 20s. You didn't have any mo- anybody more than 29, and then you had 10 guys in that 10 to $19 range and nine in single digits, but only two $1 guys. Uh, was that your strategy going into the draft, or was it a matter of taking what the table offered? It was a lot of take what the table offered. Um, the one thing I think everyone's probably done at one time is leaving money on the table, so I didn't want to do that. Like, if I was willing to pay a few dollars more, I was going to. And the way it worked out is I usually take the top 15 players in in this league, and that gives me an average of their values, and so I'll have, like, $32 to spend on a player, a top-caliber player. And then I try to do that for each one, and it gives me my money. So with not spending as much money each round, like $3, I kind of just kept bumping the money down, and it just kept allowing me to buy into the teams a little bit more. So since I didn't get a first-round guy, I was able to get multiple team guys. Sometimes I get a little worried that those guys will thin out, but it didn't seem to happen. And even during the draft, there were some players I wish I could have bid on. So it was still fine doing that. Because if you take the 23 players and $260, you just have to average you know, $11 per player. If you spend $11 per player and they're each worth $15, dollars $16, $17, you're gaining $5 a player, which will really add up at the end. I mean, you might not have the top end, but you just kind of get talent across the board. Also, I think there's an element of, of risk management that a lot of people like in this kind of strategy. Uh, that is, if you throw $60 at Mike Trout, you're really at, at the mercy of Mike Trout getting hurt, which in fact this year is exactly what happened. And so uh, by spreading your money around, you also spread the risk around. I think that's why they call it that strategy. It's called spread the risk, but in uh, it works in a mixed league. How do you think it would have worked had you been in a, uh, a, a single league format where the players are a lot tougher to get? I actually like it more in a single I actually, in this one, I wouldn't even call it like spread the risk because I still had the lower dollar guys. I, I mean, I didn't have the single $1 players. Um, I think I had two $2. I think I had like $6 going into kind of the dollar days. So my plan was is there's still good deals there. So I kind of wanted to spend in the singles and not just spend 10, you know, 10 to 10, $12 per player and end up that way. But the other thing, this, this draft, um, with Tout Wars, there's a history. I mean, you can go back and kind of see how the players play, the participants act. And normally there's around a 20% inflation with the early players, and usually it breaks even. Around like um, $13 is when players started getting cheaper. Well, this year there was about a 40% inflation early on. So that heavier early inflation, I knew that the deals were going to come a lot quicker. So I kind of backed off a little bit. 
once I saw that the heavy inflation was happening. But um, there was at one point, I remember, when I picked up Koi Kluber, he was the last top 15 pitcher left on the board. And when I went to throw him, I threw him at my max price. I kind of expected him to go more, but I needed to know if I was going to get him or not. And I ended up with crickets on him. Like every other pitcher had gone for like 40% more. And looking back, I was like, well, I got him. I got what I wanted. Maybe I shocked the room a little bit. You know, you didn't get in like a bidding war as you went up. But it's like I ended up with him, and he was the type of pitcher I wanted. Like I said, um, with my team, I kind of targeted – I'll just go over it all here. With the hitters, I was aiming for players that could have for power, some speed, and league average on base percentage. So it's kind of having that combination. There's sometimes that doesn't happen. First base, it's tough to get speed at, and it's also tough to get speed at catcher. But otherwise – I wanted a balance between my players because it's really tough to go find a Billy Hamilton if they get hurt or a Trey Turner. You can't really go find that speed. But you can find the guys that hit for maybe just a little less power and a little less speed, and they can fill in for your team. They're just easier to find. So that was kind of my plan on pitch on my hitting was just so, like, if one player doesn't completely bring down my team, I can kind of find a comparable player that just a little bit less. I don't need to go find a bunch of home runs. And on the pitching side... I've come to the point where I just divide out um, relievers and starters. Like, they're just two different entities, and I just worry about the relievers and give myself a pool of money for them and try to get my saves that way. And it could be with a couple top guys or maybe, you know, kind of bottom feed. And then with the starters, I wanted to get the high number of strikeouts, a certain number of strikeouts. So a lot of the players I got were high-inning throwers, with reasonable strikeout rates, which would put me around the 200 range for each one of them or more. So at the end of the year, I was kind of looking around, of my six starters, looking around 1,200, which generally, historically in the league, puts you around like third or fourth place, and then I could get some of the more from my relievers. So I ended up with starters like Kluber would give me a lot of strikeouts, Jeff Samarja would give me a lot of strikeouts, Rick Brasello, he'd give me strikeouts, but totally destroy everything else. So those are the kind of, that was kind of my plan going in, and it, Ended up just working out pretty good for me. And um, yeah, with closers, I ended up with two of them, A.J. Ramos and Giles, and they've maintained being closers so far. Ramos is little. And then I've just kind of gone off the waiver wire trying to pick up other ones while running in six starters. Oddly, uh, Jeff, your team has thrived despite some underperformances by many of your top guys. You mentioned Corey Kluber, and you've certainly got your money's worth at $26, but your top two offensive guys, Buster Posey and Chris with a C. Davis, cost you $55 in total, and by BaseballHQ.com valuations, have only produced about $16 in value, so you're minus 39 on your two top guys. You lost some money on Porcello, you mentioned, and Danny Duffy between injuries and some poor games, uh, also came up well short. How did you overcome the the bad performances by all these key players? Yeah, I was I was looking at the, just the one I was um, with Buster Posey. He in like the fifteen team league, he may be a little bit higher because the replacement level on catchers. When you said that, I was kind of a little bit looking at that, but he's definitely worth it at this level. I, I think he's he's even for the year at least. But Chris Davis, oh yeah, that was a disaster, and my Priscillo and Duffy ones weren't great either. It's kind of just I was able to kind of pick up some bottom guys for a little bit more, getting you know fifteen dollar guys for um, ten dollars. Robbie Ray's been a great help on um, for starting pitching. Jeff Samarja's actually been great. If he could actually win a game, the Giants could back him up. He's just 
Um, just an amazing um, player. And then on the offensive side, probably the two guys that helped me out the most was um, Cody Bellinger. I actually, in the reserve rounds, he was my top rookie pick. I liked him over you know, Mankata, mainly because I thought he would play more. I didn't think Mankata would act. The playing time was going to be an issue, and I know Bellinger could hit. And I was when I was in the fall league actually at, um, for first pitch, it was like seeing him play just a little bit of the outfield, just being able to see like he can handle it out there, so he can make it at first or any of the outfield spots. I was encouraged by that. And Steven Souza was just completely a random pick. I mean, it was toward the end of the reserves; everyone else had a chance to pick him. I was like, well, at least I can get some steals and some home runs from the guy if he plays, and I can just put him on my bench, and if I don't like him, I can move on. And since he's gained some plate discipline, he's just been a, a force in my lineup since day one. Like, that was – those were probably the two players that I got for nothing that, you know, have given me $20, $25 value probably. Yeah, the Bellinger pick in reserve is a, an astounding pick, and I'm glad you mentioned that one of the reasons that you looked at Cody Bellinger as a reserve round pick was that you saw him at first pitch Arizona in that league because, uh, of course, it's a baseball HQ type of thing. We like people to know about first pitch Arizona, but that's one of the advantages of seeing these players, uh, that you, you can assess their athleticism and all the stuff that doesn't really pop out of the statistics. I remember years ago being at first pitch Arizona where, where I was just astonished by a young player that I was watching and it turned out to be McCutcheon and uh you know, having seen him out there, you know, the knock on him as a prospect was a little small, a lot of tools, but no production. And you saw this guy play and you thought, this guy might be the best ball player I've seen in a couple of years. You know, he can do everything. And so he automatically shot up in the uh, in my estimation. And I, I ended up getting him in one league at, at a pretty severe bargain because nobody believed in him because they hadn't seen him. Yeah, it's definitely. And the one thing I've I went back and looked at who had won Tout Wars previously. Like I said, it is nice. Not every league you have the ability to go back and look to see it. And they all hit on, like, the one rookie. Like, it was um, Trey Turner came in and gave him just unknown production or the year Korea. So I was looking around, like, I need to find that one or, you know, try to find a rookie that I think can really help me. And he was the one. And the other one I was going to take was um, – Zimmer, which has also been really productive. It was like those two, I could, I saw chances for playing time. I saw teams that were in the playoff hunt. You know, they're like, we don't care if he's up early or not. Like, we want to win. You know, and the Dodgers want to win. Cleveland wants to win. The White Sox didn't really, they don't care about winning this year. So that's why it was kind of staying away from Mankata and try to get teams that, you know, would bring up those rookies to try to get in the playoffs. Yeah, that's an interesting point because the knee-jerk reaction when you see a team that has playoff aspirations is, oh, they'll never take a chance on this rookie because they need production all year because they want to chase. But on the other hand, a team that's got no playoff aspirations has no reason to start a guy's service clock running, which means that uh, in in a weird sort of way, they're even less likely to, to want to get a guy up into the major leagues and producing. That's a really interesting point. Uh, you average 12 moves per week this season so far, which is, seems like a lot, and it looks like you did a lot of pitcher streaming is that correct and how important was streaming in your strategy definitely streaming was one my goal was to eventually find three closers which i i find if you're not looking for your second closers could disappear any day via injury or whatever so i was kind of always looking for one of those 
So I kind of just allocated three spots to that because with Tout Wars, as you as you know also, is you can't go take chances on players without putting them in your lineup for one week. So it's kind of this tough thing like, well, he may be a closer. You don't know for sure, but you still have to take a chance for a week. But with the start, so that was a lot of kind of some of my streaming that way with, or, you know, just a lot of movement churning on that, trying to find closers as the season went on because I really didn't want to give up saves just to dump it. And with the other one, I wouldn't call it streaming in the normal sense. There was more of a matchups. Early on in the season, I had some whip and ERA issues. So, and once I got a decent lead in strikeouts, it was more trying to find out who wasn't going to kill me for the week. Like I said, I wasn't really trying to accumulate wins and strikeouts in the traditional sense. It was more like, this guy's going to Colorado. I've got one, two, I guess just two main pitchers in the NL West, which can be issues. And then I've also got um, Chase Anderson with the Brewers, which sometimes, like, going to the Cubs or even, you know, some of the teams that come in um, to their home park can cause problems. So it was more just trying to stay away from blow-ups instead of trying to, like, accumulate stats is how I did my um, streaming this year. Also an interesting point of view because, again, we always think of, of streaming because, as a way to uh, accumulate wins and strikeouts, but what you were doing was streaming to avoid blow-ups, and that's a, an interesting approach and an uh, innovative approach, and good for you. You, you made a significant trade, just one. Uh, you gave up Elvis Andrews early in the season, I think around late April, early May, and got back Nomar Mazzara. First of all, what were you thinking at the time? I was at the time I was so far behind in home runs and RBIs that I was just looking to pick some up and I was either first or second in steals or first and second in runs. I was high in those and I was just trying to balance my team. It wasn't the best move and I wish I could have it back, but it was kind of more I had other players on the move. Um I had a deal for Kevin Kiermeyer really close and he just that's when he got hurt. So um it was it was just it was, it was more of a balance move on my part, and like I said, it just didn't work out. I didn't, I didn't believe Andrus could kind of continue to hit for the high average, the on-base percentage. I kind of knew the steals and possibly even the home runs for for real, but um, not one of my better moves. But like I said, it was just more of a balance move at the time. What's your process when you're uh, go, uh, about to make a trade? Are you the kind of guy who reaches out to other teams? Do you wait for them to reach out to you? How did you know that Mazara might be available? That kind of thing. Um, I kind of reached out to specific teams. Um, I did put up that I was looking to trade, move it, and then I looked in the lineups and looked for the guys that were like, you're leading in home runs and RBIs. You're hurting in you know, runs and stolen bases. Maybe we, you know, I can help you balance balance that way. The problem is I gave him to Zach Steinhorn, and he's now in, I don't know what it is for the day, if he's in second or third. Him and Ron kind of trade places almost every day. But, now I had to give it to one of my competition, but at the time I think I was in nearly last place in the league. So I've been able to move up since then, but it was, um, no, I just kind of looked to see who else could do it. I'm, you know, try to figure out a guy that's ahead in steals and maybe see if you can get some of their steel guys from them. And the other thing I found with trading is it's a lot easier to get guys away that they've taken off the waiver wire or like the reserve round that they don't have as much invested in. So you can try to get these guys that are like kind of pop-up players. The teams don't seem to covet them as much, and they're easier to kind of pry away from them. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs. And Jeff, we're talking about trades uh, earlier this month in your Rotographs column at Fangraphs.com. You wrote an article titled Waiver Wire Pool and League Size, and I think this is an important thing for uh, fantasy players to really get a hold of. You were defining what you called a transition point between where stolen bases are available only in trade versus being available in the free agent pool, and that has to do with pool size and, and team depth. Where did you find that transition point? I kind of found it. It was happening around a fifteen between like fifteen to twenty team leagues, mixed leagues. So it'd be like around um, is where it just kind of happened, and that's with a normal um, bench size. Sometimes I know one league we were in was like ten teams, but we had like a twenty person bench, and it was just. I mean, the waiver wire was just decimated. But if you have like a normal like five to sixteen bench with you know reasonable number of them. Um, even, I mean, DL slots, it happens around there. That That's where there's just the players aren't. I mean, if you look at, like, an NL league where you've a normal one like Tout or Labor, you've got 12 teams that are putting out 13 hitters. I mean, that's almost every hitter in the league is taken. So, I mean, there's just – there is no one on the waiver wire in those. I mean, you – if they're a starter that comes up, you almost see it every week that it's like they get picked up. Because the reason they came up is someone else probably went down and someone else needs needs the player. You know, they need they need their replacement on their team because they don't have them anymore. So I I think in those leagues you really just have to just look around and try to make trades more. But a couple of years ago I was in the um, first time in a long time I had been in a 12-team league for Tout Wars, and we made like one trade throughout the year. Because they're just, I think everyone was just dumbfounded or in awe of the players that were available on the waiver wire. It's like, oh, if I need steals, there's some here. And I think it gets a little bit harder at 15, but there's some transition between the 15 to 20 and definitely, you know, like, I'm in like a 10-team AL league, which I think is kind of the right number. I think 12 is a little too too much. There's just no waiver wire. There's at least replacements, but you can't really go out and find home runs and steals. Like, those are definitely taken. The players that are out there are kind of like the Alcides Escobars of the world. It's like, well, you're at least getting someone, but you're the, you know, it's just a fill-in. We've made the point here at Baseball HQ Radio before when we've been talking about uh, league depth and the and especially the depth of the free agent pool uh, that maybe it's time for people who want to continue playing in single league formats 12 team that we need to maybe shrink down the number of hitters that are standardized on the roster and increase the number of pitchers to reflect the way that the rosters in big league baseball are now being constituted with a lot of teams having you know 13 pitchers to 12 hitters it used to be 11 to 14 kind of thing and and uh that's another way to solve the problem. Also, maybe get rid of reserve lists or something like that. It's uh, it's definitely a, an issue, but if it encourages trading, on the other hand, that's maybe a good thing because it's uh, it's more fun to play in a league where there's lots of trades. I'll never win this argument, but I think across the board it should go to 10 pitchers. I think there's just – if I ever look at the waiver wire, even in the AL league, there's pitchers on there that should be owned. I think the pitching number should go up. If I mean, if we're going to just – decimate every hitter i think the pitching could go up one and again with hitters i don't know if it's to maybe get rid of the middle infield 
you know, one outfield, or it's maybe cut down the size, especially in NL where they don't even have the DH or the number of teams. I think it just has to be, you have to be able to at least be able to go find a replacement. And sometimes you can't even. I remember Jason Collette put out something this year. It was like, I need an outfielder, so-and-so's hurt, and here's, like, my options. And there was none. There wasn't an outfielder, because especially with people's benches, he had no one available on the waiver wire to fill a need for his team. And I think that's just too deep of a league. If you can't even find a starter, something needs to happen. Or even a decent fourth outfielder who might play, you know, twice or three times a week would be better than what you're looking at now, which is basically you're getting a bench ender, pinch runner type guy at the end. I've thought that uh, the, that the the solution might be to go to four outfielders and one extra infielder rather than specifying you need a corner infielder and a middle infielder. Just get a guy who plays infield and call it a day and, and drop the roster down from 14 hitters to 12, maybe bump the pitchers up to, uh, to as you said, 10 or maybe even 11 and try to even it out. And, and my rationale was always this, Jeff. The founders of uh, Fantasy Baseball, Rotisserie Baseball, said that the pool should be roughly 75 to 80% of all available players. And right now we're at like 98% of all the hitters and 60% of all the available pitchers. It just seems out of balance. Oh, I agree. It's Like I said, I, I was going to see if we can maybe try some of that stuff for one year to see if it will balance out. Talk to Peter with like in Tout Wars or someplace else just to see if it plays out better and see if people want to. Maybe people like to play it with none, but, I mean, I'm sure if someone asked me in labor if I want to do NL or AL, I would want to, but truthfully I like 15-team mixed, and I could maybe see it a little bit higher, um, you know, maybe a couple more teams just to kind of get that 80%. But, like I said, I, I, I think it's wrong when you can't find help on the waiver wire. Like, if you just can't even physically find a replacement – I think that that's that's an issue that kind of you know needs to be addressed and you know I mean if at least in our 15 team league if you go to the waiver wire you don't feel good about it none of the players are great there but at least I mean there you have someone you can plug in or at least maybe a good reliever and um, in those AL leagues it's it's just not available at all In your column, you made a good point about the need to be aggressive in deep leagues by bidding on players, the players who occasionally appear, I guess, in the free agent pool. You you, you said you need to bid on those guys even if you don't immediately need them. I thought this was a really good strategic point. Explain what you meant. Well, I even found myself sometimes doing it where it's like, it kind of is a twofold thing. When Devers came up, he was like third base, and on my tout team, I have four third basemen right now. Um, so, or through various qualifications. But, I mean, I got Rendon and Lamb, which are only third base, and then Jose Ramirez and Nunez, which can be. I was like, well, I don't really need a third baseman. But then after seeing what he did, it's like, I should have just paid what it, paid what it took to get him and then dealt with him later, even in our, I mean, it's a shallower league than an AL one, but it's like you need those difference makers with the AL and NL, they have that big trade deadline where everyone's team gets gutted and moved around, which is a whole different topic that it's tough to deal with. But in the mixed league, it's like very few difference makers show up during the season. It's like you kind of – that's kind of my approach is just go after them and try to get them. I mean, it's – especially like on the 15-team league, I mean, do we have 15 difference makers that show up in the league? during the season, maybe, maybe 30, but I mean, it's like, 
you really have to get those guys and then just kind of, you know, feed off the bottom and hope you get something good otherwise. But it's like, I don't know, I'm kind of more just a, kind of aggressive and go after those difference makers. And I'm, in Tout Wars, it's kind of I haven't seen any come up and I haven't even put a bid on in the last few weeks because no one that's come up, I'm kind of waiting to see what happens with the rookies this next week. But I'm just like, none of these guys will really make a difference. And since we have to start them for a week, it's like, I really don't want to take that chance, so I just, I just kind of passed for the last couple of weeks. And so was the idea: had you bid on Devers and had you landed him with a huge bid, even though you already had the multiple options at third base, it seems like it would give you the flexibility to say, "Well, now I can trade one of these other guys and hang on to Devers, or I can look at who finished second and third in the bidding on Devers and make a deal with them because they were clearly interested as well." It. it it reminds me of the Danny Ainge approach uh, much talked about in the NBA, which is just acquire the assets now and figure out what to do with them later. Yes, and that's especially when they're not available, you know, readily available to come up. And then, and I, I just, there's just a couple times I wish I'd have been a little bit more aggressive. I thought I could sneak in Zach Godley for a little amount, and I missed him immensely. I, I mean, I was like, I wish I could have put in $200. I like, I saw that sinker. I saw him in the spring training. It was like, this guy can be a difference maker. And like I said, I was kind of mad about that one. Definitely mad about Devers. I took an early chance and blew about $200 on the first Blake Trinian. Um, Trinian I can't remember exactly how to pronounce his name when he was closing um, for the Nats and blew over almost a quarter of my fab on it. I was like, well, if I can just get another closer, I don't have to worry about it and can concentrate otherwise. Well, that failed, and then later in the season, I picked them up for nothing. I might have even been in zero bid, and that's paid off with just some saves, saves since then. So, no, I'm, I'm fairly aggressive on it and just try to get those guys that I want. You also said, Jeff, uh, to be sure to think about how absentee owners affected the free agent situation, and what did you mean by that? A lot. I've even seen it in tout wars that some some guys just aren't as active, if at all, and kind of look at your absentee one, and you may be able to, people may not be as aggressive here later, because they're just not paying attention. So this might be a good time, especially if you're in a keeper league. My AL keeper league, I pay a lot of attention now, um, just to see if any guys come up, and I can just try to get them for a really low price for later on. There's some rookies that if they come up, I'm going to be, seeing if I can sneak the bottom in because whatever we bid on in that league is is its price coming in. So you can't – I mean, you can drop all your money, but you might have to throw them back in your player pool. But if you just bid a dollar, you've got them for a dollar the next year. So I'm going to just kind of see and see what makes it available because – and even in that 10-team league, I bet we only have seven teams, six teams kind of active right now or, you know, 100% active. We try to force them otherwise, but, I mean, you can definitely tell they've moved on to football. And it's just like, let's see if I can get him a little bit better price. And the player pool kind of increases then throughout the year. It's like earlier on, you may be frustrated and lose some. But as teams become inactive, you the player pool kind of improves as the season goes on. So it, it's something you have to kind of take into, into consideration a little bit. But it kind of does take until football starts or halfway through the year until some teams kind of start quitting. And you may see the, the pool improve a little bit. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs.com. And uh, Jeff, you also had at Rotographs, a part of Fangraphs, you wrote a column about stuff you heard at the Sabre Seminar in the summer uh, in Boston. I know sometimes that material isn't hugely relevant to fantasy, and unfortunately there's a, sometimes a bit of a divide between people who are into Sabre metrics and people who are into fantasy, because it seems so obvious that the two that the two um, groups overlap pretty substantially. But uh, you said you thought some of the discussions were potentially useful to fantasy players. A couple of them caught my eye as possible breakthroughs in predicting and managing pitcher injuries, especially elbow stress. What was the news about this elbow stress stuff? It's definitely an issue. And they had Glenn Flessing, which is the top guy that's out there, um, one of the top researchers on it. And it basically just comes down to it's going to be an issue for a long time, if pitchers are still going to throw hard, something's going to break. And it seems like they've moved away from shoulders. They're able to strengthen them. There's like some muscles involved, and it's moved to the elbow. And there's some new surgeries maybe to speed up Tommy John surgery. They may not have to use it, do it as much, but something in the arm is eventually going to break, and it just seems like Tommy John's going to be it. Uh, it's going to be that small ligament, and that's – they just can't strengthen it. It's kind of sad, and like I said, they're trying to do what they can, but it's it's just too much motion to throw that hard all the time without something given out. I mean, it, it was kind of like there was news, but it wasn't. It was kind of depressing, but it's. I mean, he gave some things that they're working on, but it's just something we're going to have to live with for years. I was hoping that you'd say that there's something about a particular style of mechanics. They used to talk about that inverted W motion like Mark Pryor had very famously and, and those kind of things, but nothing on that front? Um, not so much on mechanics. Now, the one thing that they did, other people have talked about, Will Carroll came on, was they're able to measure it. They may be able to stop it. That's kind of the one front is before it breaks, is you may see teams jump in a little bit quicker and, and until they can wear actual wearables on their arms to do it during a game, it's going to be tough. But I think they're going to get better at the point of being like, you're probably stressed out too much. We need to pull you right now. That's probably the one thing. On the mechanics front, everything I've been kind of hearing is like, if it works for you, do it until it doesn't. Because everyone's arms are a little bit different. I think kind of the cookie-cutter approach actually caused injuries for a while. And it's like, no, everyone's different. We're Bodies, you know, have a little bit different bone structure and everything else. So it's like, have it work for you until it doesn't, and then they'll look at trying to change you as kind of the current approach on the injury part. I think this mention that you made of wearable uh, analytics is really interesting because we're already seeing that. I mean, a lot of people wear the uh, Fitbit-type watches that keep track of your heart rate and, and pulse and blood pressure even and stuff like that. And uh, I read in your column that there's some kind of sleeve that they can wear to uh, assess the wear and tear and strain that's uh, being applied on the arm. Do you foresee a day that, that A, that becomes ubiquitous, and B, that it becomes allowable in-game so that the uh, training staff can say, whoa, 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 it doesn't look like it now, but this guy's on the thin edge of getting into real trouble. We'll have to see. I, I do know teams that use it in the bullpen. You'll actually see some pitchers, if you kind of watch during relief outings, you'll see, a, see them pull it off. And I think a lot of it's to see if they're warmed up, but teams are using it that way. The, 
I think it's going to become more common. I do think that getting it in games is going to be I, – I, I kind of see it happening in the minors first and seeing how it affects them. And also you're going to want pitchers that kind of – that will throw with it on their arm. I don't know. Some of them yeah. don't like stuff on their arms or, you know, they don't even want to wear a bigger cap that will protect them if they get hit. So it's tough to maybe get some of them to actually put it on their arm during a game. So it'll be – I think it's going to come up. But we'll have to see where it goes. I don't think it's going to happen right away, and I really see it always happen in the minors first. Like, they're going to test it there, or they'll test it in the fall league. It'll be something like that first to see how usable it is before it actually becomes that way. The other thing that they did bring up, which was kind of interesting, is um, um, they were talking about thoracic outlet um, surgery. And the one thing that I was... Um, What's interesting about it, and I didn't know either, it wasn't like with Tommy John surgery, it's like it breaks, you need to have surgery on it. It sounds like every pitcher has a problem with the nerve that they move, remove the rib from and they have this surgery for, but it's just the varying degrees of it. Even if you throw or I throw, if, if we start having some arm issues, it's probably related to thoracic outlet. It's just not enough to keep us from throwing. So there's like this varying degrees of it. And any of the old dead arm stuff, they think it was related to this. They just had to have the nerve calm down and they didn't have surgery for it. So it sounds like it's common with everyone. It's just some pitchers, it gets so far along that they just have to do something about it. So um, I think we'll hear more about thoracic or, you know, it's like this is related to this nerve that's being irritated by, you know, your rib. And I think we'll have it, you know, more injuries will be related to it or, you know, being marked for it. But it's kind of interesting that it's just kind of now becoming a little bit more common and then pitchers are trying to deal with it. Well, getting back to these wearables, you know, I can see at some point that uh, it, it's usually the owners and the general managers who have to decide whether the rules change to allow these kind of things. And I can tell you, if I just spent, you know, $280 million to sign Clayton Kershaw to a contract or $300 million for Scherzer or whatever it's going to cost for Chris Sale, I'm going to say I'm all in favor of this rule because I want to protect my investment. And if this wearable thing will help me figure out ahead of time that I can avoid 18 months of, of Tommy John recovery, I'm all for it. And I can't see why the pitcher himself wouldn't be in favor of it because he doesn't want to miss 18 months of action either. Uh, your colleague at the Hardball Times, Rachel Heacock, presented an intriguing idea at the Sabre Seminar about player valuation. It was based on asset pricing theory. The presentation itself is available at the Hardball Times site, but Jeff, maybe you could give our listeners the big picture overview. When she discussed it, she was discussing teams at the MLB level, and immediately I was like, "We can something here is usable for fantasy baseball." And I was like, "There's, it's it, the main point is trying to incorporate the amount of risk that an asset has." And it's, it's usually used with stocks, but, I mean, a player has an amount of risk compared to the average risk for the league, and then you can determine how much risk a team's willing to take and what their risk tolerance is, depending on how much money that um, they have. Well, after the presentation, I didn't 100% understand it, so I went back, and I've actually read quite a bit been on it, actually bought a book and read, and generally... 
most of the stuff isn't applicable to fantasy because we all kind of play in the same pricing structure. I mean, we all get the same amount of money, the same you know resources whenever we go into a draft generally, or even you know into an auction. So a lot of it that she was talking about isn't applicable to us. It's applicable to teams because they'll have different money. And a lot of their stuff's with keeper leagues or with um, players that they maintain. And But the main thing I found out was to measure the risk. And when I read up on that, that's definitely something I'm going to look at this summer, is trying to put a risk factor to each player, the amount of risk that they'll have. And I think that it'll be interesting to see if teams would, if um, fantasy players would actually use it. And I think more of it is like with the top players, they all kind of have the same amount of risk to get up there. It's like well, they've played a long time. We know what their stats are. But instead, I think the biggest issue is going to be those like $5 players where you're going to have someone like Jock Peterson. Like he has a high upside and a high downside, but you're not paying much for him. But also you're going to have someone down there, oh, I don't, I'm trying to think of maybe Alex Gordon, we'll have, that he has a similar projection. But since his, he's not been productive for years, or for a few years, his pro- projection's really close to what we expect. I mean, he, we've got a lot of stuff behind him, a lot of years. He may have the same projection, but a lot less risk. But the deal is his projection's probably going to end up being bad where Jock Peterson has this huge range where he may be great, and maybe in the later rounds, those are the guys you need to look at as the guys with the higher you know, risk, because the upside could be there. But if it's down, you just move on to someone else. So that was the main part I took out of it. I think that there's some stuff, and I plan on writing about it, and there's a chance I may talk about it at first pitch. My topic hasn't been picked out yet. I get I sent um, two or three of them to Brent Hershey, and he hasn't let me know what what exactly I'm talking about because he's trying to do it with talk about with the other participants. I don't know if you've seen Ron Chandler's Babs system, the the new system that he invented, which tries to account for risk in a cumulative sort of way by saying, "Here's a uh, a balance sheet. Here's the the upsides and downsides on the statistics." But I but he also puts in injury risk, playing time risk, uh, lack of experience risk, and these kind of things to try to get a handle on it, just in a cumulative way. So you're you're trying to get up to plus twenty in home runs, not in the count of home runs, but in the kind of players. And over on the other side, you're trying to balance out your risk by saying I'll take a few guys who are high risk and by high risk I think he means more high volatility and I'll balance those out with guys who are very low volatility low risk guys so that my total at the bottom is going to be within an acceptable range for me yeah and I I love Ron I do his work and with Baseball HQ the one thing I will say and I even wrote an article about it at Baseball HQ is a lot of the injury risk for hitters or you know, being injury-prone is just a made-up term. It just doesn't exist, and you can see it with Stanton. If there's any player that usually a hitter that doesn't have a continuous permanent injury, like Paul Holse's foot or David Wright's back, it's just kind of a freak injury, those are actually the guys I target anymore. Everyone downgrades them. No one liked Mike Moustakas this year. You could got him for nothing. You'd end up with you know 34 home runs so far, possibly around 40. Who knows what he's hitting? Stanton's going off. Actually, most of the hitters that get bad 
health grades in the baseball HQ annual, those are the guys I go after. They always just get downgraded so much, and there's just nothing out there that proves that if you were hurt the previous year as a hitter that you're going to be hurt the next year. So those are actually the guys I target, and they're kind of ones that I like to pick up. Well, here I think I'm going to – I understand what you mean, but I'm going to speak on behalf of uh, the many listeners out there who are going, well, wait a second, Mike Stanton misses like 100 games, 80 games, 50 games, 80 games in his previous seasons. How can you say he's not prone to injury when he's always getting injured? Uh, what, do, what do you mean by that? Previously, there's, like I said, the articles are – it's on Baseball HQ. Just kind of look back. It was one of the last ones I'd written for you guys. But I've looked at the guys that had spent time on the DL in previous seasons and what's their chances of being on the DL the next season. Well, the deal is with you have like a 30, 35% chance of any player going on, hitter going on the DL. Well, if you have a third of the players going on the DL, there's, the chances are, again, the next year that a third of those players are going to go on the DL again just from the odds. So eventually some guy is going to have that chance where he's that way. But there's just nothing that shows if you were hurt in the previous season, if you have the guys that are healthy, there's a 33% chance that they go on the DL. If you have the guys that were hurt the previous season, 33% of those guys are going to go on the deal the next year. But it just happens that some guys, it hits for them for like three years in a row, three or four years in a row, and they just kind of end up being unlucky. But um, there's just, like I said, the odds are that some players are going to get that way, but it's just the same chances of a player being 100% healthy going on the deal. When when you're looking at hitters, with pitchers, it's a whole different scenario. But with hitters... um, they all have the same chance going in, and the numbers have kind of proved it out that way. How about on the reverse side, Jeff? What about players who year in, year out, play 155, 160 games? Uh, your Cal Ripkins and guys like that, I mean, he's obviously an outlier, but there are players who, well, Alex Gordon, for the most part, year in, year out, they're putting in their 135, 150 games. Is there something to be said on the other side that maybe there's no such thing as injury proneness, but is there not injury proneness? I'd have to look to see if – I can't remember if I looked at that, but, I mean, I remember a guy I loved coming into this year, which wasn't injury-prone for years, was Adam Eaton. And he um, – in one league, I you know, lost my fourth-round pick for the whole year before the season even began. So I kind of think there's, like, the freak injuries, but I can see if there's some healthy ones. And, I, and also with Ripken – well, Gordon went on the deal this year, but some of those guys, to kind of keep – that going is a lot of times they play through it, which is almost more annoying than not. It's like, well, you're obviously hurt. Something's going on. But, um, no, that'd be interesting. I can definitely look at that side to see if there's the guys that, you know, maintain the 160, 150-game seasons and see if they can keep it going then. Yeah, there's a few of them, and, and usually uh, when you read in the uh, preseason reports and the and the suggested projections and so forth where they say, you know, this is a guy who plays every year and always has, and the inference that we're supposed to draw is because he always has means he always will. And Evan Longoria jumps to mind too. He's a guy who plays a lot and doesn't seem to miss too many games. Uh, it would be interesting to find that out. I think if you would have asked, who would have played more games coming into the season, Mike Trout or Mike Stanton, I think people would have, or G. Carlos Stanton, went back to his old name, I think people would easily taken Trout, but it's, you know, the opposite this season. Yeah, 
that's exactly that's exactly right and uh, and it just goes to show you that when as soon as you think you've got this kind of stuff figured out turns out you don't and that's one of the things that makes it fun uh, another presentation from the saber seminar you talked about was the effectiveness of shifted defenses and especially i'm curious how does this affect players for fantasy purposes the main thing that they have come out with so far is they know who to shift and it's it's actually happening earlier in the minors so players it may already be incorporated into their projections that when they come up they're already their batting average is already being hindered because teams are shifting them that's kind of the one thing is that they're not seeing some guys come up and it's like oh we need to shift you now because you're pulling the ball they already know they need to shift them way before they get here and it's a lot of times happening in AAA, so they can get players used to shifting. So that was the kind of one point of it was, you know, it's, it's more in the pipeline now. And then also it's kind of a percentage. The other big thing that people have to understand is just because one player gets shifted and it really affects them, and a team's shifting another player, it may not bring down their average, but like five points. That even if they quit shifting them, that there's degrees of its effectiveness is a thing to understand on it. And maybe a team will quit shifting the player and his stats stay the same because he's goes kind of borderline to be shifted and the effectiveness wasn't that good and maybe he could start going the other way and teams just kind of gave up on it. So I still think it has some, but just because a guy's getting shifted doesn't mean that he's going to be like David Ortiz and just see his batting average just plummet because of it. It's like he needs, there's degrees of it. And it's just something that, um, for fantasy purposes, I think you just kind of have to understand that some of these guys may have lower averages, batting averages, and there's really just nothing that can be done about it until, you know, I don't. I mean, they're not, I don't see them changing the rules no matter what they've talked about before. So, I mean, it is what it is, and I think it's one of the reasons that we are seeing a little bit lower batting averages, but it's not going to continue to bring him down. I think a lot of players are just going to come in with this inherent low batting average we're going to see before they get to the majors. Has a bit of an effect on their ability to drive in runs too, uh, especially you know with lower batting average on balls in play. They're just... Uh, they're they're victims of a of a good idea on defense, and I think you're right. I think we just have to value that in when we're looking at a player, knowing that there he is going to get shifted. There's nothing he can do about it. He he doesn't appear to be able to go the other way often enough to force them out of the shift, and so you just you just say, okay, now I know he used to be a 270 hitter. Now he's going to be a 250 hitter, whatever the case might be, and value it in accordingly. Uh, uh, Alan Nathan, Doctor Alan Nathan, is one of the preeminent figures in the physics of baseball, and he was at the seminar. Uh, I am you of that uh, presented on using science to understand the home run surge and he's been involved in this already it's been bouncing around quite a bit what is dr nathan's latest his latest and the one thing that he was kind of misquoted by various people on this he only looked at the seams effect he didn't look at the core or anything else so there was some stuff that came out but he found that like 20 i think 18 percent Around 20% of the home run surge can be explained um, by a change in the seams from the new ball. So that was definitely, I mean, the ball has, is, was part of it. I, 
truthfully, I don't think it was intentional. I mean, they changed companies. The balls within spec. It just changed enough that people were able to hit more. And I think the big thing that he's found and a lot of people have found out is once they found out they could hit the ball a little bit further, is a lot of players started going for more home runs. So, I mean, they, their, their batting average will probably drop a little bit, but they're trying to get a little bit more lift, and they can see those home runs go out. And that was part of it is that it's kind of a dual thing where it's like, oh, we've got this new ball that we can hit further. I'm going to try to hit more home runs. And we kind of just haven't hit a balance yet. I still could even see home runs go up again as even more players try to go for it, and batting averages just still may stay down or strikeout rate, you know, strikeouts will go up as people try to hit for it. So it's definitely something that's it's happening. And I think the big thing for um, fantasy owners is keep your eye out in spring training to see if there's any changes. If Major League Baseball is talking about lowering the seams or they're trying to change the ball again, or if teams are talking about it or some of the experts are, they have ways to kind of determine it on pitch FX if the seams have um, – if the ball's changed. So just kind of keep up on it and um, see if there is any changes. I'm going to go into next season assuming nothing's going to change, that we're still going to have the home runs and maybe the wrong play. I did it this this year, thought, you know, like the lower guys, weaker guys could hit more home runs. It paid off. It's kind of a gamble that you're going to have to take. But, you know, the league likes the home runs. They like the long ball. They like to see scoring up a little bit. I just don't see them changing it. So, I'm just going to kind of go in with the approach that the high scoring is going to continue and um, value my players accordingly. Yeah, it's hard to imagine Major League Baseball looking at all the home runs, which really attracts, uh, and I've said this before on the show, it's really more uh, aimed at attracting the casual fan rather than the diehard. A lot of us would prefer if they went back to a, a more nuanced type of game, but, uh, you know, they sell more tickets, they draw more television viewers. I can't see that Major League Baseball saying, hey, this is really working for us, let's change it. <laughs> you know, why would they, right? Uh, there was a multi-author presentation that included Dan Brooks of brooksbaseball.net about measuring pitcher symptoms similarity and this is a really intriguing idea i remember hearing about it a few years ago at first pitch from vince gennaro from uh, saber uh, the, the sabermetric uh, community what's the latest on pitcher similarity and how to group pitchers it's it's they're doing a really good job of doing it they will sit there and have the various traits of like their release point their velocity the types of pitches and kind of group them in and then what they found is they can do a good projection of these similar pitchers. How do, how do they age? How do they project into the next season? And it, they were able to get really good, you know, better projections than what was out there. The problem is it's really hard to do. I would definitely follow these guys and see if they put out any information. And maybe on your own, you can be like, oh, this is a slider fastball guy. You know, or how I think the main thing to look at is kind of like the Tyson Rosses of the world, where they're just fastball slider. And like, how have these guys survived? And they really just struggle a lot of times getting hit because they don't have a third pitch. Um, I remember coming in the season, I had to make a big decision in a keeper league on Luis Severino, and I was like, he's only fastball slider. It's just not working. And it's like, I had to, I let him go in a keeper league. He was one of my last cuts. And then he got a curveball and turned into amazing you know it's just it's like that's what he was missing it's like he's just going to end up in the bullpen so i think you can kind of find these guys 
that have similar traits and kind of see how they age or how they work on your own. But to get to the granular level that they have, it's going to be really tough for someone on their own. So, I mean, I would kind of follow them. Maybe they'll put out some projections. Maybe they can um, make some of their stuff available. But otherwise, I mean, someone's going to really going to have to create their own pitch FX database and start comparing these players. And like I said, I think it's great stuff, but I think it's a little bit more. What I would do is just kind of maybe look at, kind of do it on your own, but not to the detail that they were doing. It seems like a terrific idea on its face because uh, instead of saying, I wonder how this hitter is going to do against uh, Max Scherzer, you can say, I wonder how this hitter is going to do against a Max Scherzer type player. You call him group you know, C9 or whatever. And because there are more of them, you get larger sample sizes right away and maybe a bit better results. And it does seem to me like it would be really useful for assessing hitters, especially in DFS situations where you could say, uh, uh, I don't know this pitcher. He doesn't have a real track record, but I know he's a C9. C9, so I can compare how this hitter does against the C9 type of guy and get a bit better of an insight as to how he might do against this guy, even though they may never have met. Oh, I agree 100%. I tried to do it one year, that type of thing. It was it was just a huge amount of effort, and I just only had so much time. I wish um, I wish I could have found a way to do it easier. Um, all, I didn't even look at as much as they were. I just looked to see if the guy was like a ground ball pitcher and kind of his velocity. Like some guys don't do good against velocity, and with their upswing, they're good against ground ball pitchers that keep it low because they're in the same plane, and those guys can really hit. But it was trying to find those guys and try to group them together. And um, I did it, and then every year everyone's like, are you going to do this again? And I was like, man, that took me like two weeks of time to do. It was just like it's. I felt like I could use those you know, 80 hours to – do something more aggressive, but um, maybe I can try to code it or they'll make it available. But it's, I'm just going to say, if anyone wants to get into it, I can give you some help, but it, it's kind of a, it's an intensive um, evaluation, but maybe it's the difference that it takes. And I'm sure teams do it because they have the resources to do it. I was going to say, I bet there's teams working on it right now because it could be really helpful in figuring out what trades you want to make or what trades you don't want to make, who you want to keep, who you don't want to keep, all that kind of stuff. I did it myself a couple of years ago in the same, but a very basic way. Like you said, ground ball, fly ball, uh, big fastball, not so big fastball, break on the curve and stuff. And pretty soon you get overwhelmed with just the amount of factors that you have to try to add in to get a reasonably detailed portrait that goes beyond Hey, he strikes out a lot of guys and gets a lot of ground balls. My kind of pitcher. And still, a guy who strikes out a lot of guys and gets a lot of ground balls should be your kind of pitcher. Yes, and that's and that's kind of where I, I got to. And I think with the DFS, it's really good on like an individual level where you're looking at maybe with daily lineups that you can – people that do it. I've gone away from daily lineups because there's times I don't want to – if I go on vacation, I don't want to see anything about baseball for like three days. Like I just want to go fish. So I have tried to stay away from daily lineup leagues, if any bit possible. And actually, I don't have any this year. But that's kind of, um, I think with the daily lineups, you can definitely try to get more of those matchups. And um, like I said, I think it's useful. And maybe um, it's, it's just an advantage that some, some teams or some owners can have, and it might make the difference on the, throughout the season. And by the way, I drafted you in the second round of my fantasy fishing league, so pick up the pace a little, will you? 
You heard from a former player at the seminar about the ineffectiveness of the minor leagues in developing major league skills. Uh, that seemed really interesting to me as well. What was that about? Well, his main, um, main point was he was taught how to be effective in the minors. And basically, he's like, look, fastball, layoff, breaking ball. You can't hit him. You know, don't worry about him. Don't swing after him. So all the way through, it got him to the majors. And then he's, when he gets to the majors... There's pitchers that can throw breaking balls for strikes, and you have to hit it then. It's like, I don't hit breaking balls. So he spent like two years, you know, learning how to hit, you know, breaking balls when he got to the majors. And it sounds like there's a lot of this going on where it's like these minor league managers are, they're really not teaching them to be in the major leagues. They're teaching them to win in the minors so that their record looks good and they, they look better. So I think some teams don't do it that way. We had some discussion there, and they were like, definitely it's kind of like the Cardinals way where these guys get to the majors and they're all a lot better than other ones. It's like because they train them to be in the major leagues. You know, it's like you may struggle through the minors and get here because we're trying to teach you how to be good in the majors, not in AAA or not in double A or not in single A. So I think it's just like a different mindset on some of these players on how to get there. And another thing that I think teams are moving away from it. There's still some there. I definitely see it like in high school and college even worse, where they were trying to have the same approach for every single hitter, expecting the same results. And it just doesn't happen. Everyone's a little bit different. They can definitely, you know, it's like you kind of need to zero in on what this guy needs to work on and work on that. Like, you know, if he has fielding practice, if he's an 80 glove, he probably doesn't need fielding practice. He probably needs to be in the cage the whole time and not take infield. You know, he might need some, but it's like, why not work on his hitting, which really can be improved, instead of spending the same amount of time on each player doing the same things. So I think that there's going to be, there may be more of a push as some of this feedback comes back for teams trying to get individualized talent to try to get these players improved on where they need to, not the same stuff across the board. And I think it's tough because some of these guys had been in the majors and, you know, these other minor league coaches like, oh, I got here this way, why aren't you? And I think there's some kind of – it might just be kind of a time change type of thing or, you know, just trying to get in the right culture to make those changes. In fact, a recurring theme here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast has been the need for fantasy owners to look at organizations when they're evaluating and projecting players, especially prospects coming up, because as you said, some of these organizations are a lot better at getting these people into the into the major leagues and being effective when they first arrive. I think of Tampa used to be really good with starting pitchers and still pretty good in that regard. So... Uh, how important are the organizations overall, especially when it comes to projecting these prospects? I think it is. I think it's really important, and I think there's two aspects that can be combined into greatness. Is I think some teams evaluate talent better. Like they're like this guy's talented, and then you'll notice that they'll give that guy a ton of at bats. They'll bat him in the top three spots of their lineup, going up to the minors. They are trying to get their top guys as good as they can, and the rest of them are fillers, 
Like, the rest of it is just organizational fillers. They're just going for those top guys. And then there's other ones that are, like, kind of put everyone the same. They do know they're top guys, but they really don't give them as much treatment and try to pull out a few diamonds out of the rough along the way and push them, um, and then they turn out great. The Dodgers kind of seem that way. I mean, Bellinger was effectively a nobody a couple years ago, and then he just started really turning it on. And it was... I mean, he was kind of just a has-been, you know, I think he was like in their barely making MLB's list a couple of years ago of their top 30 players in the Dodgers, and now he's one of the top ones. So I think there's teams that can evaluate talent. I think there's teams that can develop it. It's the ones that can do both are the ones that are really, you'll, you'll see. And I've kind of been surprised with the Royals this last year that with, with Merrifield and Bonifacio, that they were able to get, these guys that really weren't doing good in the minors, they come up to the majors, and it's like, you're ready to play in the majors. And they kind of seem to have these guys that aren't highly touted, but they seem to be developing them, kind of like in the Cardinals' way, where it's like they're there to make major leaguers, not to make winning teams in the minors. I would, I would love to do a study on how these guys come up and done compared to their projections over the last couple of years and which teams have done the best. Yeah, it would be an interesting study. There's a lot of ways you could go about it. Uh, which teams seem to seem to be better at drafting guys who end up having um, productive major league careers? Which teams are the ones, as you mentioned, that maybe don't have the guys uh, at the start, but who develop lower ranking uh, draft picks and make them into good productive major league guys? And then, of course, what you really want is the holy grail: is teams that are good at identifying their talent before they draft them, drafting them, and then getting them to the major leagues and making making them get the most out of their talent. It's a it's a multi pronged thing, and I can see in my mind's eye a kind of a matrix where where you had a, a like four quadrants: good at finding talent, bad at finding talent, good at developing talent, bad at f- developing talent. And what you want is the guys who are in the good good quadrant. Right. And yeah. And then there's teams. Well, they've actually gotten better. I was going to make fun of the Reds a little bit. I was like, but don't do either. But they're. I mean, sometimes they hit, but it's actually I think they're doing better at evaluating them. I've kind of liked a lot of their picks here recently, so I'm going to be quiet about them. Well, as a Reds fan, I appreciate that. Uh, Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs.com. And uh, Jeff, as we approach the end of the 2017 season, we're asking our experts to give us thumbs up and thumbs down to players for next season, looking ahead to 2018. Uh, Let's start with your thumbs up, guys. These are players you think should interest our listeners as they consider their 2018 draft strategies. In the American League, who's a hitter that you like for 2018? Um, I don't know what he's going to go for. I could see people not. Um, Philly's great, but Steven Souza is one I'm going to be in on. He's got improved plate discipline. It's not a Babbitt-related issue. He's just not striking out as much, and he's making contact. Getting himself on base gives him more chance for, for steals. He's getting himself home runs. I'm really intrigued on where he's going to be drafted, and I am see myself kind of um, jumping in. Um, I've kind of found that some of the play discipline stuff is likely to stick from year to year. So he's one that I'm definitely see myself owning a few times next year. And in the National League, who's a hitter you like for 2018 that some people might not? I am. We'll see how he does, but I'm actually, I was all in, like I said, on Adam Eaton, and I'm going to be on him again. I mean, he just had a freak injury. I think he's going to fall down. I mean, he was around third-round talent. People were looking at him high with runs. I think that what Nationals team just hit a horrible 
amount of luck with health this year, and I could just see him just tear it up next year. Like I said, I think his value is going to be so far down that he's going to be a great value for people. Is it just a horrible run of luck? Uh, this makes me think back to what we were talking about with developing prospects and uh, evaluating talent. What about an organization's ability to uh, to to f- keep p- players from being injured and to treat them effectively once they do get injured? Are there organizations that we like better than others on that front? I on the pitching front, on the hitting front, it's really tough because some of them are kind of freakish. I would probably have to look into it more on the pitching front. I don't trust a single Mets pitcher. I don't own them anymore. They don't stay healthy. I just stay away from them. It's just easier because it's like, oh, wait, they got hurt again. They just don't seem to be able to deal with it. And then historically, the White Sox are amazing with their pitchers. I mean, they're, they're not going to be good for a few years, but it's they stay healthy. If you look over historic numbers, they've had less than half the injuries of the next lowest team. And I think like the Rangers pitchers have had like five times the amount the White Sox have. So there's definitely some teams on the extremes that um, to stay away from or go towards. But like I said, those are the two that are definitely stick out in my mind. Yeah, as soon as I asked the question, I thought to myself, I've heard that about the White Sox, that they're really good at keeping their pitchers on the field. And speaking of pitchers in the American League, who's a thumbs-up American League pitcher for you for 2018? I'm going to go with two. I'm going to try to get them. Is if I have to get an AL pitcher, I want Sailor Kluber. The pitching is so bad in the AL. What What is good is hurt with McCullers and Paxton. I want one of those top two studs to anchor my staff. I am looking for a top-end pitcher, and, um, and then I, I will deal with the bottom because the bottom's all the same in my opinion. Interesting that you mentioned Chris Sale because that awkward delivery we were talking about earlier uh, where you said, uh, you know, teams are look, learning – not to fix a guy who's got an awkward or unusual delivery, and Chris Sale's the poster child for that. And he's been very durable, despite what looks like a, 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 an injury waiting to happen kind of delivery. In the National League, who's a pitcher that gets your thumbs up for next season? I think I mentioned him earlier. I love what Gat, um, Zach Godley's doing, just keeping the ball on the ground, missing bats. Um, I think you'll get him for fairly cheap. I don't think projections are going to like him one bit if people are off that. I think he could... I think he easily could be a top 10 pitcher in the NL given a full season. I really like what I see with him. Um, Like I said, he definitely getting, um, as long as Tomas doesn't play third base to have to field ground balls, just get him in the outfield for that. It's like I like Zach Godley as a buy low. Jeff Zimmerman's thumbs-up player, Steven Souza of Tampa, Adam Eaton of Washington. His pitchers, uh, Chris Sale of Boston, Corey Kluber of Cleveland, just because they're the only ones he can trust, and Zach Godley of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, now let's go to the thumbs-down players, Jeff, uh, moving over to the American League again. Uh, who's a hitter that's going to probably be overdrafted, in your opinion, that you're going to be wary of? I'll see how he ends up, but I put down Aaron Judge. I still see a lot of people loving him. It'll be interesting to see how him and Stanton go, because I almost see him as similar players. Also, Joey Gallo, I almost put them in that same boat, that they're going to have that same a lot of swing and miss. I think, in my opinion, if I have to really pay up for judges' first half, I may just look at someone like Joey Gallo, who's got enough contact now and be able to hit the home runs, and you might be able to get him for half the price. Just out of curiosity, out of Aaron Judge, Cody Bellinger, and Reese Hoskins, who do you think hits the most home runs in 2018? 
think Judge will have the most home runs. I'm really worried about that average just really dragging him down. I think Bellinger's going to have a little bit more contact. I like the part that Judge is in. I think that'll give him a big advantage. I will see more on Hoskins. I mean, we've had players, Gary Sanchez last year that really broke out, got a lot of them. Let's see how the league adjusts to him over the rest of you know, a month here and see how that works with him. In the National League for 2018, who's a thumbs-down hitter? I'm going to give it to Chris Taylor. He's been getting a lot of love. He's he's actually come down from where he was previously when he was hitting close to 400. He's still got like 18 home runs. This really, There's been some swing adjustments written about him, but I just see him being kind of overvalued. And I mean, there's kind of a reason he's just kind of been a a player on the move for the last few years. I just I don't buy it. Um, maybe if I look a little deeper, there's something there. But from what I've looked at so far, it just seems like a lot of Babbitt luck, and I'm just I'm not buying in. Whenever I see players like this, uh, Jeff, I I like to look at which organization gave up on him and which organization took him on, and then compare their track records at uh, developing talent or recognizing it. And in this case, uh, I like the way the Dodgers pick up players and I like the way that they think about players and maybe the Seattle wasn't getting the most out of this guy I'm not sure uh, in the American League who's a pitcher that gets your thumbs down uh, he's burnt me too much he's just not healthy he's Lance McCullers it's he I was all in I love the talent the talent's there and one of these years from now on I'm going to get burnt he's going to be 100% healthy for a year he's going to go to the top he just hasn't been able to prove as a pitcher that he can stay healthy and it's um, and it just seems like people overpay for him. They pay for the per-game basis, and I think that's not a horrible strategy in a shallow league where you can go find players off your waiver wire, and that might be part of me playing in deeper leagues where I need the pitcher to have a chance to be healthy for the whole season, and you know there just isn't anything on the waiver wire. So maybe in shallower leagues he's someone to take a chance on, but I just don't see myself doing it. And finally, Jeff, in the National League, who's a pitcher that gets your thumbs down for next season? Kershaw, I just don't trust him anymore on staying healthy, and it's just been years of it. I'm trying to decide if he's no longer going to be my top pitcher for the price that I have to pay. He may still be talent-wise number one, but it's gotten so much closer with him, with Sale and Scherzer. Actually, another one that I probably should have put up on my NL thumbs up, which was really close, was Bumgarner. He was healthy all but the freak. I mean, his arms have been hasn't been a problem until this motorcycle accident. So I'm kind of intrigued that his price was low because he was kind of in that top group. So he may be a little bit cheaper but still might be able to get the production. But I just don't think Kershaw is a clear number one because of the health. Like, he needs to be able to stay healthy, and it's just not been happening in the last few seasons. So um, I can't buy all in, and I think I'm going to try to get one of those next four to five at a reasonable price to try to um, – get one of those top-end pitchers. It's just, they're tough to find nowadays. And as you said earlier, it's all about managing injury risk to the extent that you can. Uh, Jeff Zimmerman's thumbs-down players, uh, his hitters in the American League, Aaron Judge, National League, Chris Taylor, and his pitchers in the American League, Lance McCullers of Houston, and uh, in the National League, Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers, uh, both in those pitcher cases, injury risk. Uh, Jeff, this has been a treat. Uh, tell us where listeners can keep track of Jeff Zimmerman. Currently 
currently I'm I'm writing extensively at um, Fangrass right now. I will be back at Baseball HQ this next year, and then also I do some work for RotoWire. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff W. Zimmerman. Someone else beat me to the regular one, so I had to put in my middle initial. And then um, that's pretty much it. I don't do much on Facebook otherwise. So um, those are the two ways to go ahead and get a hold of me, and I'll try to answer any questions that people have. And Zimmerman is two M's, then uh, one N, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not like Jordan. I didn't, didn't get into the N, extra N bit. All right, Jeff. Uh, geez, thanks very much for doing this. It's so interesting to talk with you finally, and I really look forward to the next time we get to chat. All right. Thanks a lot. Jeff Zimmerman is a baseball researcher and writer from Fangraphs.com, and you can bet we'll be having Jeff back in future editions of Baseball HQ Radio. It's time in the show now when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. This week, our skills columnists look at base performance value leaders in August, as well as looking ahead to September. In Facts and Flukes, Brian Rudd looks at the hot Dexter Fowler, the cold Jonathan Lucroy, the warming Scott Schebler, and more. In the eyes have it. HQ Minor Leagues analyst Chris Blessing looks at Atlanta prospects, including left-handed pitcher Colby Allard and catcher Alex Jackson. And that's just a small sampling of all the great content at BaseballHQ.com all the time and why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Cleveland right-handed pitching prospect Tristan McKenzie is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. The Cleveland Indians' Tristan McKenzie has quickly developed into one of the top pitching prospects in baseball. McKenzie was the 42nd overall pick in the 2015 draft out of high school in Palm Beach, Florida. The 20-year-old McKenzie has a long, projectable body and should add more velocity as he matures and fills out his lean 6'5", 165-pound frame. At present, McKenzie comes after hitters with a plus 90-93 mile-an-hour heater that tops out at 96 miles an hour. He mixes in a plus curveball that he controls well with depth and late break and a changeup that shows potential but needs to be more consistent. McKenzie has dominated in 2017, going 11-6 with a 3.57 ERA, with 45 walks and 176 strikeouts in 136 innings pitched and 24 starts for high A Lynchburg. In the process, McKenzie jumped from number 88 on our preseason top 100 list to number 28 in our midseason top 50 update. Long-term, Tristan McKenzie now looks like a solid number two starter who could turn into a number one if his fastball velocity continues to improve, and he is definitely worth owning in deep keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Cincinnati right-hander Tyler Molly, Atlanta left-hander A.J. Minter, White Sox right-hander Lucas Giolito, and more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing those at-bats or innings. 
In this week's edition, we'll look at a couple of category-specific September call-ups. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. At this point in the season, it's all about categories. You need to be looking where there are bunches in each category of teams to see if you've got room to move ahead or to fend off bunches below you within each category. This is how you should target your waiver pickups and fab the rest of the way. So with September call-ups on the way, we'll take a category-based approach this week. First up is stolen bases, where Mike Shears identified Kansas City outfielder Paolo Orlando as a call-up who could make a dent with his legs in September. Orlando is a team's opening day right fielder, but he got off to a slow start and then missed two months in AAA with a leg injury. Orlando's turned things up a bit lately in AA, hitting 340 over his last 94 at-bats, and he stole 14 bags last season with an elite 150 raw speed score. AL-only owners will want to look for Apollo Orlando if you need the speed. Another call-up is Francisco Mejia in Cleveland, who could provide boosts across multiple categories at his scarce catching position. Mejia hit 297 at AAA with a 346 on base to go with 14 homers and 8 steals. He's expected to platoon initially for an Indians team that's playoff bound, but with the team 7 games ahead of the Twins, if they make any more ground on that, they may want to give Mejia a regular look behind the plate to see if he can help in the postseason. Mejia is our top catching prospect in the minors. He ranked 15th on our midseason prospect list, and we gave Mejia an 8B prospect rating in Friday's call-ups column, meaning he's got a great shot to be an above-average regular in the big leagues, and he could provide that all-around production as soon as this season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Philadelphia second baseman Scott Kingery and St. Louis starter Jack Flaherty. We talked about him a little earlier with Nick, and here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Now that we've reached September, once again it's time to wake up and smell a coffee. This week's edition of Frequent Flyers will profile two players who may be called up for a quick cup, beginning with 23-year-old Philadelphia Phillies second baseman Scott Kingery, who has exploded for 26 home runs and 28 steals while producing a 304 batting average through two levels of the minors in 2017, a trend that Nick Richards readily identified in his June 19th minors column at BaseballHQ.com when he accurately predicted that Scott Kingery, who was previously known more for speed than power, would now be known for both. Currently blocked at second base by Cesar Hernandez, Scott Kingery is coming off a record-setting 23-game hitting streak in AAA that ended on August 26th. In other words, Scott Kingery is making a strong case for his September call-up. With shortstop J.P. Crawford reportedly coming up on Tuesday, make note of that, chances are that Scott Kingery might not be far behind. Of course, there's no official word on that yet. That's why Scott Kingery, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be log shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. But consider this. Scott Kingery has been taking grounders at second, third, and shortstop, creating the potential for more at-bats in Philadelphia and possibly increasing his draft value for 2018. 
Another player who could rise quickly on draft day is 24-year-old St. Louis Cardinals starting pitcher Jack Flaherty, who is scheduled to make his Major League debut tonight, Friday, September 1st, versus the San Francisco Giants. In the September 1st edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com, Nick Richards says that Jack Flaherty knows how to pitch. His mechanics are repeatable. It showed consistent success all the way up the minor league ladder. Indeed, this former high school teammate of Chicago's Lucas Giolito and Atlanta's Max Freed has posted a career ERA of 277 in the minors while striking out 398 batters in 400 innings pitched. According to Nick, this former first-rounder knows how to throw strikes with four pitches, a fastball, curve, slider, and changeup. In addition, he rarely walks batters, as evidenced by his control rate of 2.2 walks per nine through two levels of the minors in 2017. However, watch out for the long ball. After allowing only 10 home runs total between 2015 and 2016, Jack Flaherty has surrendered 10 home runs and only 15 starts at AAA Memphis in 2017. Then again, the recent trade of Mike Leake to the Seattle Mariners does create an opening for Jack Flaherty in the Cardinals' rotation. In other words, maybe it's worth creating an opening on your roster for both Scott Kingery and Jack Flaherty, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero, with ratings of plus one or better strong bets to start, and ratings of minus one or worse strong bets to sit. Between the ones, those are the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own appetite for risk. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including a marquee matchup pitting Boston left-hander Chris Sale in New York to face the Yankees' Luis Severino, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. It's Labor Day weekend, and we have two doubleheaders on Saturday. One is in Houston, where the visiting Mets would benefit from the designated hitter if they had anyone healthy enough to fill the role. Matt Harvey returns for the New Yorkers to share a recommended sit matchup rating with teammate Seth Lugo. So you go with your Houston hitters on Saturday. In San Diego, the Padres entertain the Los Angeles Dodgers in the other twin bill. The more interesting of those two Petco Park matchups on Saturday showcases Dodger right-hander Hugh Darvish returning from his turn on the 10-day DL, which L.A. might as well call the VL since it's given several Dodgers 10-day vacations. San Diego Southpaw Clayton Richard pitches for the pods. The matchup rating differential favors Darvish by 95 thanks to his matchup rating of 033 and Richard's minus 062. Four teams have recommended sit matchup ratings for both their Saturday and Sunday starters. So load your weekend lineups with the opposing Toronto Blue Jays, Oakland Athletics, LA Angels, and Washington Nationals. There are only two recommended start matchup ratings this weekend, one for each league. In the National League on Sunday, Max Scherzer has an even 1.0 for his start against Brewers right-hander Matt Garza at Milwaukee's Miller Park. Garza has a matchup rating of minus 110, giving Scherzer a very favorable matchup rating differential of 210. In the American League on Sunday, and likely on a TV screen near you, our marquee matchup features the Boston Red Sox slender southpaw Chris Sale and his weekend best matchup rating of 144. Not much more can be said about Sale. In his most recent start, 
all he did was reach 1,500 career strikeouts faster than any other pitcher in the history of Major League Baseball. And though Sale is a slam-dunk starter for sure, let's not overlook his Yankee counterpart at the stadium in the Bronx. 23-year-old right-hander Luis Severino may have a wild-card matchup rating of minus 003, but he deserves some attention, too. BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Buyer's Guide analyst Stephen Nickran noted on August 12 that Severino is in full breakout mode. He now has a BPV of 151, a swinging strike rate of 13%, a first pitch strike rate of 65%, a dominance rate of 10.6 strikeouts per nine, and a control rate of 2.5 walks per nine for a command ratio of 4.3 strikeouts per walk. Severino also has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 65% dominant to 15% disaster. He has two separate streaks of four straight PQS dominant outings, including eight of his past ten. Against Boston this season, Severino has two PQS dominant fives at Fenway, one in April and one in July. But in August, he has only a PQS disaster zero versus the Red Sox, and it was at home in New York. That factors into Severino's wildcard matchup rating, yet he's certainly no slouch if you want to start him on Sunday. We began by highlighting the Saturday doubleheader in Houston, recommending that you load your lineups with Houston hitters to capitalize on the Mets' pair of starters with recommended sit matchup ratings. One of those Mets starters is Seth Lugo, who has a matchup rating of minus 131. Our Saturday surprise is the scheduled beneficiary of Lugo's largesse, Houston's 33-year-old right-handed retread, Charlie Morton. Morton has a wildcard matchup rating of minus 037, but he has a lot more going for him. In his past eight starts, Morton has five PQS dominant efforts. In his past eight home starts, Morton has four PQS dominance. Overall, Morton's PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 40% dominant to 20% disaster. But his most recent disaster was back on July 7 in Toronto. He hasn't had a home disaster since May 19. Morton has started 15 or more games in eight different seasons. In 20 starts this year, he's showing career bests in whip, opponents on base average, dominance, command, first pitch strike rate, velocity, fantasy value, and BPV. After starting only four games in 2016, Saturday surprise Charlie Morton is quietly having a surprisingly successful rebound season worthy of comeback player of the year consideration. And you may be pleasantly surprised if you give him more than wildcard consideration this weekend. Best of luck for a fine finish to your fantasy season. If you're coming to First Pitch Arizona, please say hello to me there. In the meantime, check our site to get updated matchup information every morning. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com signing off for 2017. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, and this was his last weekend Pitcher matchup segment of the year here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about if Troy Tulowitzki is coming up short. The Toronto Blue Jays have been playing their best player, third baseman Josh Donaldson, at shortstop for a few games recently, which has sparked discussions in Toronto at least about whether Donaldson could play shortstop regularly next year, while current shortstop Troy Tulowitzki takes his increasingly fragile and slow-footed self over to the hot corner. That debate heated up on Wednesday of this week when Tulowitzki came back to town for some medical work on his shredded ankle, and he spoke with reporters on the Blue Jays' beat. 
According to stories in both the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail, Tulowitzki declared that he will be back in 2018 and that he will be playing shortstop. What happens with Tulowitzki next year could be interesting because it'll be an indicator of how teams with supposedly advanced front offices are going to manage popular but declining players who get in the way of potentially helpful changes. First, we should be clear about something right away. Troy Tulowitzki is no longer an elite hitter. In fact, he's no longer really even an average hitter. Fantasy owners have been on to this for a while, because it's been a while since Tulowitzki was fantasy relevant. He was a reliable mid-$20 player from 2009 through 2011. He had a 32-homer-20 stolen base season in 2009. He lost 2012 to injury, earning just a dollar, then bounced back into the low 20s in 2013 and 14. But since the 2015 trade from Colorado to Toronto, his value has been sliding faster than newspaper futures. He finished 2015 as a $15 player and then in 2016 felt the full effect of leaving Coors. $11 last season and just $2 this year before being done with that ankle injury for the season. Over the last three years, which includes his last part season in Colorado and his first part season and subsequent seasons in Toronto, his batting average has gone 280, 254, 249, and his slugging percentage 440, 443, 378. His hard contact index, 126, 110, 101. His stolen base days are as ancient as Nero's fiddle. He has six bags in the last six seasons combined. He's also battled injuries large and small, which is one reason for the gossip about moving him to third base. The idea is that playing the hot corner is less physically taxing than the keystone. That's true, and it's a worthwhile consideration, although some might wonder about a player who's hitting his subpar for a shortstop fitting in at third, which is usually a position for highly productive hitters. But the real reason the third base move looks appealing to many fans, and perhaps to the Blue Jays' front office, is that Tulowitzki, clearly no longer an above-average hitter, is also no longer an above-average shortstop either. Tulowitzki used to be, well, not elite, but slightly above average as a defensive shortstop. I looked at him using ultimate zone rating per 150 games, which, extremely simplified, is a widely used metric that looks at how many balls the fielder successfully handled in his assigned zones on the field compared to his position peers. I compared him year by year to players who played at least 70% of their team's innings at short. In most of his years, Tulowitzki was around the 6th or 7th best out of 17 to 21 shortstops. Above average, not elite. His peak was a 4th best UZR 150 in 2010. Until 2013, his rate floated around plus 5 to plus 8, meaning he was 5 to 8 runs better than the average shortstop. Now, for context, real elite defensive shortstops, your Andrelton Simmonses, your Brandon Crawford, your Brendan Ryans, they're plus 18 to plus 25 runs better. This season, Tulowitzki's UZR 150 fell to minus 2.2, making him a little more than two runs worse than the average shortstop. As well, even when he was above average, Tulowitzki was making his fielding stats by being steady and consistent on the plays he should be making, not by successfully reaching and fielding more batted balls. From 2012 to 16, he converted 97% of plays that were scored as likely or routine chances by inside edge. 
all the major league shortstops are around this same high level. But on the tougher plays, an elite guy like Simmons shows his advantage. In the unlikely-to-impossible chance type, Tulowitzki fielded 12%, Simmons 17 In the even chances, 62% Tulowitzki, 72% Simmons. And then in those likely-to-routine chances, well, 97-98% both. In that toughest group, both Tulowitzki and Simmons faced about 200 unlikely-to-impossible chances, so that 5% advantage for Simmons means 10 more outs, and pennants have been lost with less. In the newspaper stories, Tulowitzki addressed the fielding issue and insisted he still has the defensive chops to play the most demanding infield position. It wasn't clear whether one of the reporters asked him about the many defensive metrics showing his decline, but Tulowitzki did address that issue too. Uh, sort of. He said, and I quote, I think sometimes what people read into is the metrics and the zone ratings, whatever. But since the metrics and the zone ratings, and whatever, show a rapidly declining infielder, he also said, and again I quote, Hey, I'm not getting the job done, but I feel like I bring a lot to the table defensively. Which is like you going to your boss and saying, I know I haven't sold anything this quarter, but I feel I bring a lot to the table as a salesman. Either you're getting the job done or you're not. Tulowitzki further explained, again I quote, So much of being a shortstop is about being able to slow the game down for your teammates and your pitchers, taking charge in the infield. At this point, I have to confess I have literally no idea what any of this means. I imagine that slowing the game down means something like telling the other players to relax and take it easy in tight spots. But this seems to me more like a veteran thing than a shortstop thing. Surely a player could slow the game down as a third baseman, a coach, if he could yell loud enough, a beer vendor. And taking charge of the infield sounds like one of those things that guys just say. How does a player take charge, and of what, or of whom? The manager and coaches position the players defensively based on opponents' metrics and zones and whatevers. So what else is there for a shortstop to do? I guess he could yell, throw it to first! if a teammate seemed about to fire the ball out into left field or roll it into the dugout. But what else? Let's be honest, if taking charge was really something useful, George Patton would have been in Cooperstown. In short, about the only reason Troy Tulowitzki can provide for staying at shortstop next season is that he thinks he should. Now, I don't know if the team will try to move Tulowitzki to third next season, whether because they want to give Donaldson a try or sign someone else. If they do make that decision, I hope he's more willing to do it than he seems to be right now. He might not believe the defensive metrics, and indeed they have enough questions about them and weaknesses to justify some healthy skepticism. But having said that, all the major defensive metrics describe Tulowitzki as a player whose fielding skills, especially his range, are declining. And if the team's management believes the team would be stronger with Donaldson or someone else at short and Tulowitzki at third then surely it's Tulowitzki's duty to put the team's interest ahead of his own and get over to the hot corner. We have some examples from the recent past. When the Orioles asked the declining Cal Ripken to make room for the better fielding Manny Alexander at shortstop, he grabbed his third baseman's mitt and moved over. Team came first. Later, Manny Machado, a top shortstop prospect, moved over to third base because the Orioles already had J.J. Hardy, a better fielding shortstop in place the team came first.
And of course, when Yankees team captain Derek Jeter had the opportunity to go to the outfield and strengthen the team and turn the shortstop duties over to the much better fielding Alex Rodriguez. Okay, never mind. I guess Jeter took charge of the infield or slowed the game down or something. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 1st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 35 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, first-time visitor Jeff Zimmerman, baseball researcher and writer from Fangraphs.com. He's a terrific baseball analyst and a fine writer. And as you heard, he's a very interesting guest here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. We're going to be sure to have Jeff back. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst for the last time this season was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does <coughs> It really does help us add listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. That's Scott Pianowski on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.